0: Welcome to episode 83 of Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. I'm your co-host Russ on this side, and over there... And I'm Mike on this side. And the theme tonight is big. Big! Everything's big tonight. It's a, it's a big
1: episode. Is that yeah. just the episode's big, the music on it is big? Well, I don't yeah. know, one of them is kind of, Well, one of them maybe isn't, but uh, it's still yeah. a big orchestra. Big orchestras, big bands, big, 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 big... big bursting and bulging themes beefy orchestration and band arrangements yeah
0: and beethoven not to beethoven
1: and beethoven well we think of beefy and big when we think of beethoven don't we although yeah. he's not the thing is beethoven he kind of inspired the orchestra to get bigger but yeah. the biggest orchestras were at the uh the beginning of the 20th century but they didn't use like the entire orchestra at the same time they kind of used it as these these hmm. little pointillist sort of um you know sort of um yeah. you know sounds and things like that. And that's really what I love about that era so much. I just love the sound combinations. People are starting to get to know what I enjoy about music, and one of them is just these really intriguing sound combinations of different Mm. instruments and things like that. You know, So that's one of them. I'm going to hear a little of that tonight,
0: actually. I think the other thing we've got going tonight is uh, a good balance between lots of music, including the Beethoven, that is very familiar, but it's going to be done in a different way. Yeah, Uh, we've got some Tchaikovsky as you've never heard it before. Uh, But we've also got a mix of probably some music most people haven't heard, uh, both in the jazz because it's new and original, and also in the classical, a little bit uh, modern bend in the road as we go along with some interesting stuff, too.
1: Yeah, you mentioned that Tchaikovsky. It's a a Latin Tchaikovsky, and we did like a Latin Mozart last week. So it's kind of, it's it's kind of, uh, so from the classical, we were from the classical end last week, and now we're going from the jazz end. We got like a Latin Tchaikovsky thing going. So it's all mixed up here.
0: Before we get into the music, remind listeners, as always, if you're wondering what is this weird music they're going to talk about, this big Beethoven and big bands, well, you can find links to all the stuff all the recordings for Spotify and Apple Music in the episode description. Also at the top, there's a link where you can get all the music in one place, and that's on Deezer, our preferred streaming platform. You hear everything in CD quality, nice catalog of jazz and classical music. Just look for us there, Adult Music Podcast, and you can also listen to the podcast on Deezer if you'd like. Now, if you don't see the full description or links on whatever app or platform you listen to us on, you can always come over and check us out on our host site, which is podbean, podbea and everything's easy to follow there. If you enjoy the podcast, please do follow or subscribe on whatever app, platform you listen to us on. And please do take a moment, give us a ranking or write a review. It just takes a minute to click on that. We haven't had any reviews recently. And yeah. uh, when we get someone to uh, just click If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, go ahead. It doesn't cost anything. Give us five stars. That helps us get listed in the browsing recommendations. We finally popped back in there this last week, and we've got uh, some new listeners from around the world. Helps us grow our audience, so we'd appreciate that. In addition, you can come over, check out our Facebook page, where we upload things during the week. I put up a bunch of uh, jazz new releases there, some other tidbits, interesting things. You can see our handsome mugs on the photos there you can also leave a comment a message on facebook and if you want to write to us directly you can get in touch by email we'd love to hear from you check us out adult music podcast all one word at gmail.com love to hear from you and be sure to reply
1: yeah and um if you look at that picture you'll you'll know that like your favorite childhood djs once you see their faces it just doesn't match the sexy voices that they have (laughs) Although I remember when I was young and listening to uh rock radio WPLj in uh, mm-hmm. New York uh, I finally did get to see Carol Miller on TV and uh, she was she was as hot as she sounded so oh wow so if you're listening Carol if she's still around I don't know she might have she might not be around I don't want yeah. to say that because maybe she's yeah, maybe she's we- a fan you never know
0: <laughs> we do have faces for
1: podcasting <laughs> <laughs> we have podcasting faces. <laughs> Oh, uh, another thing, you know, we, speaking of subscribers, like people don't subscribe, we get a lot of listeners and they just download, they don't subscribe. I suspect that a lot of industry people are listening to our podcast to find out what to really think about the music that they're talking about. What do you think? That could be. Because we're listening to it. We're we're We really we're on it. deep into it. Uh, no yeah. glossy
0: sort of uh, light overview uh, from this side. When we uh, right. we listen, we really listen. Also, I think uh, we're doing a pretty good job with a variety of things. I'm always digging deep on uh, jazz things, uh, so maybe not this week, but most weeks there's at least one thing you're not going to find anywhere else um, coming out of an obscure corner of the world or on a little independent release or something like that. So I always want to get a mix of uh, unknown and known in there.
1: Yeah, and in fact, uh, boy, we're we're both sort of got our ears to the speakers these few weeks was September 30th and October 7th, especially in classical music. There are a lot of really big name recordings coming Mm -hmm. out, not just a lot of recordings, but you know, we're going to be busy for months now after (laughs) after these two weeks. (laughs) A lot of stuff is already suddenly coming up.
0: I got 28 just, piano releases since september 1st on my to listen listen list, yeah, okay. you know so
1: i've already like tagged a, like about 15 classical cds that i want to hear and i've yeah. and you know there's all, also you know all this jazz coming out now too like um that i want to hear too yeah not just on my own and things like that so boy gotta be busy
0: yeah a lot to all look right. forward to in the fall well it's fall now isn't it <laughs> didn't feel like it today but yeah. yeah it will
1: today today was a beautiful sunny day here in yes. where we are in japan yep. yeah all right off we go bigness let's let's talk first of all um when we think beethoven we think big and um uh, you know l2 you know we we have some uh two beethoven symphony recordings uh tonight and you're thinking okay beethoven wrote nine symphonies Every the funny thing is, is people don't know the beethoven symphonies they know the fifth the ninth the seventh and mm-hmm. you know but nobody knows like for example the fourth you know, nobody, right. <laughs> people don't listen to that one. That's the least popular one. And there's another one, one that I really like. Um, Beethoven's second symphony. It's probably my second, well, I don't know, maybe my third favorite of the nine.
0: I like this um, one a lot too.
1: Yeah, I like this one too. It's it's a real, um, it's it's kind of like you're, you're hearing, it's before Beethoven really went into his total Beethoven mode. You can hear him going into it here, but he's still got a few classical elements left. Symphony number two in D major. Opus 36, and we're hearing a recording of that coupled with a contemporary composer, Brett Dean, he's Australian, a piece called Testament, Music for Orchestra. And uh, that work is, it deals with Beethoven in a sense, because mm. it's, um, the Testament in question is the Heiligenstadt Testament, which Beethoven wrote when he found out he was losing his hearing, and he was, um, you know, contemplating suicide, which of course he didn't follow through on. But he lamented his fate as a musician. He was losing his hearing. And uh, he went on to become this really heroic composer that the entire 19th century admired. And we still admire today, really. Mm. So anyway, this is a recording. Now, so wh- why are we doing these sim- single um, Beethoven symphonies? Because these two recordings are rather unique and they're sort mm. of changing. They may even change the game a bit. We've been getting a lot of um light sort of... um. Period instrument Beethoven recordings lately, mm-hmm. and these really bring us back to this uh, big boned sort of big boned Beethoven. All this bees today. We yeah. got these. You know, we got to get a title with a lot of bees in it. You know, <laughs> we're looking for it. Big boned, beefy Beethoven. This is by the. Uh, here we go. Another bee. Staats Staatsorchester, conducted by Vladimir Jurowski, who I really love. So I wanted to hear this anyway because I mm-hmm. like this uh, com- conductor a lot. And this is on the the Bayerisches Staatsoper Recordings label, so it's their in-house mm. label, and they do quite. Uh, if you buy like a CD, they do quite some um, uh, impressive uh, graphic work on these, and sometimes uh, oversized things too that won't fit mm. in your record that cost a lot more than they than an ordinary CD, which I don't like, but they are nice. Okay, I've got a. I'm not sure. I don't want to say because it might not be them because there are a few German. Um, orchestras that do these elaborate productions. But uh, this one is a normal CD size and it's it's a pretty nice set. Actually, I have it right here. Let's take a look. It's in a nice kind of like a fold-out box. So it's a nice uh, Hmm. presentation there. Anyway, the the print on the covers is always the same. They always have these like capital like gold letters, but the, the background often changes. Uh, This work starts with um, this um, album. It's fairly short; It's under an hour, but yeah, it's a a good listening time. It starts with uh, Brett Dean. He was born in 1961, by the way, contemporary composer from Australia. Um, His work, Testament, Music for Orchestra, and this is um, really an orchestration of a work he wrote called Testament, Music for 12 Violas back in 2002. So Mm -hmm. it's been around for a while now. It's 20 years old, which is new for a classical work, but it's still, you know, it's not as new as some other music we're going to hear tonight. <laughs> All right. Anyway. Um, okay. So he's, he was, Dean was born in Brisbane in Queensland, Australia. He started his career playing viola in the Berlin Philharmonic. So he's got this German connection too. Mm. And hence the, uh, Testament music for 12 violas was written for the violists of the Berlin Philharmonic. And the uh, Testament is inspired by the Heiligenstadt Testament, as I said, in which Beethoven both laments and defies his impending hearing loss so this work starts it's it's kind of he uses a lot of kind of special techniques in this, and he gets a lot of odd sounds, mm-hmm. and we're going to hear a lot of that in classical music tonight because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> yes. I chose a I chose another kind of contemporary work that's sort of um out there actually all the contemporary works have a bit of uh, odd sounds coming from them. It starts with a. Um, Let's see. This is the booklet description. It's cuz it gives us like a lot of um information about how the sounds are produced. It, the work starts with sounds of hasty, breathless, but almost silent desperation as the strings play with bows not treated with rosin. Hmm. And so if you're wondering why um violinists put rosin on their bows, You'll hear why at the beginning of this work because <laughs> you can't get any real traction and the, the, the bow tends to slide on the notes and produces the sound that you're going to hear at the beginning of this. And the wind players blow only air through their instruments. So they're blowing into their instruments. They're not really trying to produce a tone. In this way, the main material of this piece is presented almost as if behind gauze. This is, That's a good description mm-hmm. of what we're going to hear. It's behind gauze. And I added, this is my quote, as if it has a hearing impediment. Because uh, mm-hmm. Beethoven did, so it's kind of like it's almost like a, I guess a uh, an approximation of what Dean thought, like was going through Beethoven's head, but not maybe what he was hearing or how mm-hmm. he was hearing his sounds. Um, he apparently, from what I've read, I've read you know Solomon's um, um biography of him as um, as well as other works, and he apparently could only hear the low end of things. And people think that I don't know that this is true, but people think that the Moonlight Sonata, the first movement, because mm-hmm. it's so much of it is in the bass end of the piano is sort of him sort of telling us what he's hearing, basically, oh, his kind of range. You know, I don't know that that's true, but um, it's, it, it is an odd work, though, for its period. Anyway, this gives way to um, slower music uh, led by a high floating cantalina in the flute, um, which and the flute um, represents a setting of some words from Beethoven's text in rhythmic and melodic form. There are also quotations from the Razumovsky Quartet Number 1. Even if you don't know the work, they're very easy to identify because they're actually melodic. So (laughs) Melody's work isn't. They they sound warm and romantic. They're heard but broken off without being able to find cohesion. I have to say something. It kind of drives me crazy when composers do that, like when they quote other works. Hmm. It's one thing, if you're doing that in a book... Like if you put like an epigram from another book, it doesn't make me want to read the other book, but there's some weird thing about music. Whereas when somebody quotes like another work and you recognize it, now I have to hear that work. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, cause I just want that in my head, the way it was originally sounded as opposed to like the way this composer kind of lifted it and put it in his work. I'm kind of funny like that. That's, that's why I'm single <laughs> ladies.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, this you know, I was wondering the significance of that, not having the notes for this and that. Oh, I you, sent, you, should,
1: you should write to me and tell me. I forget yeah. to send them sometimes. There's I? a
0: lot of weird pitch shifting going on in right. this kind of uh, tonal mix. And then um, it actually gets really kind of soupy. And then this tonality rises out of that, like you say. Mm-hmm. And you, you get this recognizable melody and then it just kind of evaporates. So I wondered... What is the statement here with that but now I get a better picture of what's actually going right. on.
1: Right, so it is Beethoven related, yeah. yeah, so it would have been helpful to know that at least at the beginning Okay, so the strings um, now have rosin bows and the um, the anguish and the score comes to the fore we hear faster music that is a fuller development of uh, the opening bars of Hushed Disquiet more references to the Razumovsky number one, Opus 59 number one, and the piece ends so the Unrosin Bows at the beginning, this is my sort of description of what I heard here now. Um, there's something squeaky about the sound of Unrosin Bows make. The beginning of this work is rather dark and a bit disturbing. And to me, it recalled the opening of George Crumb's Black Angels. Do you know this piece? Black uh, Angels for Electric well. String Quartet. I heard it once. It's kind of like a Vietnam War kind of uh, mm. type of piece. American composer, listeners, Um, it's... It's really challenging, but uh, give it a listen. Black Angels. The Chronos Quartet played it. That's a good mm. recording of it to listen to. Um, there's a crescendo leading to a dark and bit disturbing section. Let me see. Oh I'm sorry. The crescendo leads to a quiet, eerie section at about a minute and thirty seconds. The word eerie comes up a lot for me tonight, I have yeah, to say. It's in my notes too, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a lot of the a lot of the contemporary music we hear is eerie. One of the violins plays a long bowed note, not sounding solid due to the unrosin bow. And uh, ideas in the form of connected patterns begin to take shape, but don't quite get there. And they're distantly wailing, wavering sounds. Uh, The gauze analogy in the booklet note I mentioned here is quite a good one. Uh, There's something blurry and uh, un-make-outable. Not as in (laughs) kissing, making out. I mean, (laughs) not un... Yeah, un, kind of... Indistinguishable? Indistinguishable. That's the word there I was looking at. Okay. I wrote unmakeoutable because I'm losing my mind. All right. <laughs> About this. There you go. This is why I do a podcast and don't write columns on classical music, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, because I, I invent words like that. Anyway. Yeah, indis- indistinguishable is kind of close, but I wanted something mm. kind of original here, so there you go. There's a quiet droning section at the fifth minute and beyond. We hear... um a sound uh, morph into low reeds, always a fun thing for me, mm-hmm. at five minutes and 30 seconds. And by six minutes and 12 seconds, we're finally hearing a solid melody. This is the Rasmuski material. The now Rosinbode violins, but it keeps breaking off. There you go. The Rasmuski Quartet, Opus 59, number one, which you should all know, by the way. And if you don't, get to know them. That's, a good, that's your project <laughs> for the next <laughs> year or so. You know, because multiple listens won't help, won't hurt you. Okay, the music becomes fragmented after that, droning and haunting at seven minutes and thirty seconds. At around seven minutes and forty-eight seconds, frantic descending figures burst from the strings, and I kind of interpreted this as uh, the constant, unpredictable changes representing Beethoven's fraught mind at the time of the Heiligenstadt testament you do get a sense that these quick changes are kind of like oh there's this and oh this is happening but you know that the way your mind just keeps flashing when you're in a you know, around, jumping around when you're in a stressful sort of situation um, by 11 minutes and 20 seconds the orchestra is aggressive and active with timpani weighing in as well and the thematic material gets spiky and angular in the 11th minute until it reaches a satisfying, aggressive hammering at 12 minutes and 30 seconds. It is, mm-hmm. the key word there is satisfying. It sort of feels like something has been resolved, even though it's loud and hammering. Uh, this breaks up and we get a skittish staccato violin lines. We're back to the unrosen bows of the strings and the wind players blowing into their instruments by the end, which breaks off without a warning. I'd say this work is a good approximation of an agitated mind. You could maybe measure the level of agitation in your mind by weighing it against what you hear here when you (laughs) try that.
0: It's really interesting, our descriptions. You know, we didn't talk about this, but I wrote my lines as a sudden lightning with skittering violin, and it remains Mm -hmm. tense but ends without climax. It's. Pretty much mirrors exactly what yeah. uh, you're saying. Yeah,
1: we, well, yeah, we, I think we heard it the same way. That's pretty interesting. Yeah. We actually do like um, Brett Dean's recording. We haven't talked about re- music. We haven't heard talked about him on the podcast, but there was an album. I can't remember if it was a trumpet one or a clarinet or something like that. with Him and another composer on Beasts a few years ago. Mm. I should have looked it up, but we liked both of those works a lot. Yeah. It was kind of uh, yeah. So we're we're sort of interested in Brett Dean's music. So. We'll keep in your out for more. Check him out. Brett Dean, Australian composer. My age. He's a little older than me. He's four years older than me. Hmm. He's in his 60s now. Next, the piece de resistance of this album. Yeah. <laughs> in English, that means the piece of resistance. No, it doesn't. <laughs> it means the thing, the moment we've all been waiting for. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> But anyway, the Beethoven Symphony Number no. 2 in D Major, Opus 36, one of my favorite Beethoven symphonies. It's up there with the other one we're going to hear, the 6th, and I also love the 7th, too, as does everybody, really. We need to keep in mind when we listen to the 2nd symphony, because most people don't know this one. It's not a very famous one, but it should be more famous than it is. The reason why it's not as famous is because the other, some of the other ones are so famous that we just always wind up hearing those. But this symphony was gigantic for its time. The next of Beethoven's symphonies was the Eroica. That would up the ante uh, quite a bit. That was a 50 minute long symphony. This one's about. Yeah, forty minutes long, maybe thirty-five mm. minutes. I kind of think of this symphony as being like the the Chrysler Building in New York, which was the tallest building in the world when it was uh, built, and then like four years later, the Empire State Building yeah. was put up and became the tallest building in the right. world, and it just eclipsed the Chrysler Building. Who nobody really noticed it was there. But another thing about the Chrysler Building is it's got a really um, unique design. It's got this sort of Art Deco sort of spire. Mm-hmm. I think it's all aluminum. I think it's no, it's actually chrome. Because oh. it um, is supposed to be like the grills on Chrysler cars, they sort of made it like that. Mm. Uh, check out a picture of that, people, on um, your uh, internet where you can get all that information. So I, I think of this piece as the the Chrysler building of Beethoven symphonies. And of course the ninth symphony, I guess, would be the uh, what's the tallest building in the world now? I don't even know. <laughs> it's in Abu Dhabi or something, or yeah, far I'm not away sure these days. Yeah, because everybody's building the world's tallest building now.
0: This has always been one of my favorites.
1: Yeah, it's got a bit of humor in it too. We we often think of Beethoven as this, because you see the statues of him; he looks all serious and hmm. forbidding. But uh, this this is kind of a I won't call it light, but it's um it's got humor in it. Let's say
0: it's got lots of nice contrasting light sections, and um, yeah. I like the woodwinds a lot in here.
1: Indeed. There are also a lot of uh, little classical elements that you would hear in Mozart and Haydn. So you can hear like the Mozart-Haydn and really the classical era's influence a little bit here. That would soon go away, but it's still audible in this piece. Yeah, I think people don't listen to this much because they don't think of it as fully formed Beethoven, but it's a really enjoyable work. Mm. I really like it a lot. Okay, so the the key thing is we're not, we're not going to really describe the piece for you. It's really the performance mm-hmm. that's important here. And boy, this is really uh, I think a special one. It's it's also very different than what we're hearing from Beethoven um, interpreters lately. Um, the first movement, Adagio Moto and Allegro con brio. I should mention there's a um, there's an introduction and then the faster section comes after this introduction so mozart used to do things like this um in his symphies haydn as well so he's sort of shaping the work you know like they did mm. here although it doesn't sound anything like them because of the, the volume that he gets yeah. anyway this starts with a big rich sound from the orchestra on this uh surprisingly live and well-made yeah. recording this is a live performance Amazing. this is not in a studio it's really unbelievable really there's no applause on it anywhere or and there. are more importantly to me there are no idiots coughing that's what that's what <laughs> kills that. Yeah, that's what kills live recordings for me you know oh, but yeah. no this is like dead silence from the audience it's really amazing and I think I would have been dead silent too because this is a riveting performance yeah the orchestra sounds rather big, which we haven't been hearing much in Beethoven recently. And when I think of recent Beethoven, it's not like I'm listening to every Beethoven recording that's coming out. I'm a little bit fed up with Beethoven symphonies, to be honest, because you just hear them all the time. They're sort of like He's sort of like the Beatles of classical music. You just kind of <laughs> can't get away from it. Now, I love the Beatles. Let, no, No hate mail, please. I'm a big Beatles <laughs> fan. But I feel like I've heard these recordings so many times in my life by now that I really don't need to hear them anymore. Although I do go back to them every once in a while. Same with Beethoven. So the last um, Beethoven I heard was uh, Shai Ricardo Shai. I think it was with the uh, Concertgebouw in Amsterdam. But I think that was the orchestra because he deals with other orchestras too. But um, he had a big and rich sound, and he took tempos that were much faster than this. In fact, he sped up Beethoven quite a bit. He was thinking of... um, the new additions and kind of going for this lighter, fleeter sort of um, sound. The tempos
0: here are reserved.
1: Yeah, so Shai didn't come across as weighty, really, but this does. Mm -hmm. Uh, The fortissimi are all rich and make an impact. Good contrast between soft and loud in this performance, too. By the way, if you have neighbors, you might want to preset your volume (laughs) and leave it there because the fortes really burst out from the uh, more piano sections of this um, movement. I like the way the bass pushes the sound of the rest of the orchestra forward, okay? Uh, as if shoving all of them, it's kind of, you know, the, mm. the bass comes on, it's kind of, it kind of gets this fuzzy sound, and it just pushes the whole, the rest of the sound out. It's a nice overall effect to me. Okay, the main section, the Allegro Combrio, starts at uh, two minutes and 48 seconds, and it moves at a pretty good speed but with a lot of weight to the fortissimi, and that's very important because it makes an impact. One of the things I love about this recording, and this is um something that uh Roger Norrington, the conductor, spoiled me about with his recording back in the, I think it was the 1990s or maybe even the late 1980s, I don't remember. He did one of the first period instrument recordings of Beethoven, and he used this bass drum that just boomed out of the recording. And um in the second theme, you hear it quietly, and then the line repeats and there's like this, because I, I think of it the way he did it with this loud bass drum. Here, the bass drum is really kind of very muted when he does that second theme. It disguises the the, the bass drum on the forte se- sequencing of the theme. So the development of the material starts at around um, 6 minutes and 59 seconds or 7 minutes and 7 seconds, depending on where you place it. I have to say, when I heard this recording, when I listened to this this week, we're at I had my day job and I came to this. I was in my chair feeling kind of tired after a day of work and this really woke me up and energized me. I really, I, <laughs> um, so I was, yeah, all in with this. The development moves with good energy, the rhythm and forward movement never slackening. And that's true throughout this entire work. This sort of forward momentum continues fantastic control by Jurovsky, keeping the the orchestra on its toes. This is really one of the better performances you'll hear of this symphony, particularly in recent years. We're at the recapitulation just before the ninth minute. In the second theme, at about nine minutes and 30 seconds, we can more clearly hear the thudding bass drum in the new key. Um, there's a long, almost two-minute coda at the end, and all in all, a great performance, well-caught by the engineer. And uh, This movement might have you on your feet cheering by the end, but sit down, there's more to come. <laughs> second movement, <laughs> a lot of ghetto. I like the way Jurofsky um, pulls out the counter melody under the main theme, making it easily audible. Again, the fortes, pinned down by the heavy bass, register strongly and dramatically in this otherwise gentle movement. The tempo is well chosen, that's going to be the case throughout too. It's more on the fast side, which I guess is where it gets its momentum from. We get a real sense of momentum from all of these movements. But otherwise, it's what you'd expect. There's a nice pause just after three minutes and 30 seconds to introduce a new section. Uh, Jurofsky make sure we register every change of texture. At four minutes and 34 seconds, listen to how loud the chugging string rhythm is, which at four minutes and 53 seconds, the rest of the orchestra temporarily picks up. And also the pulsing chords at five minutes and 20 seconds really pulse, You of you get that real sense of, you, know, you can almost feel it as well as just hearing it. All of this keeps the sense of forward movement going and Tchaikovsky makes the most of it throughout the movement. It remains rhythmically vibrant despite the rhythm not being in the forefront. Third movement is the uh, scherzo. Now, a little historical note here. This would be a menuette and trio normally in Haydn and Mozart. Beethoven really hated this and uh, changed <laughs> it to a scherzo so he could do whatever he wanted. Um, this one, is it kind of has the form of a menu and trio, but the material is not danceable at all. There's a lot of contrast from bar to bar between light and heavy. Mm-hmm. It's pronounced and satisfying in this performance. Uh, the rhythm has a real spring in its step. Vibrant performance of the Allegro. And the trio starts at about a minute and 50 seconds, rather surprisingly pulls back and plays the theme more slowly and deliberately. It's certainly a contrast with the Allegro, but I'm not sure about this. I would have liked the rhythmic drive, which is there, to continue. Uh, When the Allegro comes back, it sounds like a huge release of wound up tension, as it really takes off at a noticeably higher speed than the trio. I guess he wanted that wound spring kind Mm -hmm. of um, effect, Um, but I would have liked the the trio to have been faster, the middle section that is to have been faster. Anyway, fourth movement, Allegro Molto, is kind of a comical movement. It's high spirits. It's got sort of this hiccup at the beginning and a grumble. dun 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 You know, it's kind of like mm. a hic. <laughs> <It's, laughs> and it's funny because it's also easy to pull out when he's developing the theme in, as, it, as it goes on. It's played at a high speed. It's very fast. The opening notes sounding like an actual human hiccup in the violins like that's that's what gave me the idea really uh, there's elegance in the theme at 30 seconds but themes rather abruptly get swept away for more urgent material as though beethoven is trying to write this movement quickly you know maybe the the hiccups are he wants to relieve that and he's trying to get the rest of it done so that he can he can relieve his uh sort of um complaints shall we say jorowski catches that uh i've got to get out of here sense with actually sounding like he himself is rushing the orchestra. So, he does not sound like he's rushing the orchestra, but he does have this sense of urgency, we gotta get this done, I gotta go, sort of feeling. I love the way the bass accents loudly register with impact. There's real chaos at 2 minutes and 19 seconds and beyond, uh, with the hiccup leading to other interruptions and rhythm in rhythm and line. The theme comes back after this, a perfect tempo is taken for this and all the orchestral hijinks Hi, jinks! Oh, man. (laughs) There's a word for you. Realized with great comic timing and an inexorable forward movement. I like the rushing of the string and wind theme at 4 minutes and 40 seconds and after. And there are a lot of false cadences and interrupting chords before the ending is reached with big hammering chords. That's the Beethoven we know and love right there at the end. Making his presence felt. Okay, so in conclusion, that's the whole album just those two works, and I'd say this is a performance that everyone needs to hear. It does everything perfectly, and there's genuine excitement and electricity in the playing. It seems just right for where we are in Beethoven performance today. It's also a symphony that many are not familiar with, and it's worth your while to get to know it. It has many memorable themes, and it's a fun piece. I found the sonic world of Brett Dean's Testament interesting, probably more now that the whole orchestra is involved and not just 12 violas, although I probably would have liked to have heard that too. It's a rather dark work, so provides a contrast with the Beethoven second, which is really a lot lighter. And it's mostly atmospheric, setting a mood, certainly worth a listen. So I urge everyone to hear this album.
0: Yeah, the Dean, it's got some uneasy sounds in it. And then that sort of tonal part that emerges there with another work. So it it's a little dense to get your mind around but it is interesting but this beethoven hit, i said it's stately in that you know the tempos are held back a bit compared to mm. some that we've heard recently it's extremely dynamic right. uh, the the dynamic contrast is great but everything is really clear it's amazing that it's a live recording and i found it a thrilling performance so i think it maybe may be too. my new favorite recording of this work and i have maybe probably, yeah for me too could be half dozen other ones. And especially we've been hearing this lighter Beethoven. We did a couple uh, cycles of these uh, that have come out in the past few years, but this is just really, you know, like a theme park ride through Beethoven here. It's it's just a great recording. So I recommend this to anyone who enjoys Beethoven's music.
1: Yeah. One thing about this is if you sort of compare it to the recordings of the past, it has like Sort of the heft of those, but those were very slow. The ones mm-hmm. like, you know, that Carian and before him did, they were much slower than the uh fleeter tempos that we got from uh, you know, the period instruments movement. Now he's a bit slower, but I think he's faster than the the older the ones. Old ones, yeah, because I think th- that the older composers from like say the 70s and before they were they were going for a more romantic sound. And mm-hmm. uh, we period instruments pushed Beethoven back into the classical era more as far as mm-hmm. um. Tempos went and now we're at this, which is pretty interesting. We still have like a classical tempo with a romantic heaviness. Mm. <laughs> it's kind of, and Beethoven really has like a, a foot in both worlds. He really is in his own world, really. It's kind of interesting to
0: yeah.
1: think about the way people um, interpret his music. All right. Anyway, our next recording is another Beethoven symphony. This is symphony number six, The Pastoral. Also, one of my favorites. It's a very tranquil work. I like this more and more as I get older, I think, because it. It's good to just kind of lay back. Took you out to pasture. Took me out to pasture. Yeah, I went out to pasture. This is kind of what I wanted to be like. Let's say. Yeah. <laughs> all right. And if anyone's seen the movie uh, Fantasia, the old Disney movie, this there's all these like centaurs and you know, mm-hmm. kind of like uh, Greek, ancient Greek uh, mythology creatures, kind of just sensually enjoying the uh, <laughs> the uh, the setting. Okay, set by this work, anyway. And this is paired with a work by Stephen Stuckey, uh, American composer. I got his years here. He recently, he died about 10 years ago, 1949 to 2016. Case hmm. he's a 20th century, early 21st century composer. Uh, Silent Spring from 2011. Uh, we'll get to that based on, of course, the Rachel Carson right. book of the same name. I'll, t- I'll explain that more when we get to it. This is the Pittsburgh Symphony Orchestra conducted by... Manfred Honeck, German conductor, I believe, and this is on Reference Recordings and it's an SACD. Alright, now Honeck has been uh, releasing gradually all of the Beethoven symphonies and uh, he's he's got a pretty unique take on them all as well. They're all worth hearing. And I really wanted to talk about this one, which is Symphony No. 6 Pastoral. Now, we start this work <laughs> with the pastoral. The programming here is really interesting. The Beethoven starts the program, and then we get the uh, Stuckey as the um, Mm. sort of concluding piece or maybe encore or something. The Pastoral is a pretty gentle work. It was written at the same time as the Fifth Symphony, which is this real barnstorming, you know, taking fate by the throat kind of work. Whereas this is much more gentle. These also have descriptive um, movement names and the first one is called awakening of cheerful feelings on arriving in the country allegro manon troppo okay so i didn't listen to this in surround i had this on two channel sacd and uh the opening is taken at a rather brisk and excellently flowing pace flow is going to be the uh catch word for this particular performance because these uh, rhythms, often 6-8, just he, he really accentuates that, the flowingness, this, this whole idea of flowing water is all over this piece, all over this interpretation. Uh, this has heavy bass and a rich sound from the orchestra. This is an SACD, as I said, and SACDs are usually recorded at a really quiet sound level, so you can turn them way up and you get all this detail. It's just really fantastic. But this particular SACD is recorded very up front, and that's a little odd. The fortes come in very loudly here. Uh, The sound isn't as rich as the Hardenberg SACD we heard last week, which was really amazing. Details emerge well. Uh there's a high definition but the SACD recording is merely good in a medium that can really wow the listener. The channel when there are fortes, the uh the sound just really saturates in the channel and you can he- you can hear everything but it doesn't there's not like a clear line like sort of distinguishing at all. It's it's sort of way too upfront. I'd say the Jirovsky CD we just heard sounds better than this SACD mm. actually. So sound quality wise,
0: a warning no, don't turn it up too loud because <laughs> <laughs> you know, we'll get you might to the yeah. later. Yeah,
1: right, right. Uh, okay, there's a good, re- but the performance is fantastic, as has been the case, and really unique too, as has been the case with all of the honeck recordings with the Pittsburgh Symphony Orchestra. I don't want to say that it's a bad recording; it's not. It's just very upfront, and it's just not as. I, I think hmm. they could have been more distance. Let's just say between the microphone and the uh, or the orchestra if we're recording an SACD. Um, there's good rhythmic incision in this movement too, incision, like cutting, you know, I, I think of it mm-hmm. as like sort of like stone cutting, it, it really seems very precise and um, well thought out rhythmically. So I'd characterize this performance as flowing legato, rather fast tempo, deeply etched rhythms. As for Honecker and the Pittsburgh's interpretation, Honecker is another of those uh, conductors like Jurofsky who manages to find hidden elements in the score and bring them musically to the surface. We hear elements of that but the movement's interpretation isn't a revelation. Uh, Given these two recordings we seem to be heading back to big-boned Beethoven because this is also a very big-boned performance. Movement two, seen by the Brook This is more andante, in fact it's labeled andante molto mosso. There's a nice muted quality to the sound of the lower string accompaniment of the opening and the flow with legato like gentle waves um, on a lake or I guess a brook since it's called seen by the brook. I'm impressed at how well Honick and the Pittsburgh players capture that quality of the the flowingness of the the water. We get a good sense of the 6-8 time signature, again deeply etched into the interpretation. I like the way the bassoon comes in at 2 minutes and 45 seconds, and the accompaniment accomplished not just by the tone, but by the constantly flowing nature of the rhythm. I should mention this tempo is also a bit quicker than what we're used to, and the material from 5 minutes and 30 seconds on comes up vividly as well, grabbing my attention in a way it never has. In fact, the flowing rhythm showcases all of the instruments that emerge from the texture with solo lines very well. One of the most noteworthy interpretations of this movement that I've heard. Retards and accelerandos, especially in the last two minutes, are taken extremely well. Uh, listen to the accelerandos in the bird song at around 11 minutes. Um, really vivid. This is a really gorgeously executed movement. That's the second. Track three, this is um, a, a brief merry assembly of country folks. So of course when the country folk get together, at this time in history, they're going to dance in a symphonic work anyway. As you might have guessed, this is fast and is played with the country dance rhythm in high relief. We've had all the rhythms in this piece placed in high relief. By this performance, this is no different. And this movement sounds positively celebratory. There's something about this, though. From 50 seconds, there's an interpretation of country musicians playing. Okay, I need to make a point about this. From the 50-second mark, there's like... And then there's like a bass, you know, playing the triad backwards. Dun dun dun. Pretty easy to pick out. The bassoon is playing an arpeggiated downward triad, and as composed in the score, it comes in at the wrong time because it's supposed to be like a a caricature of country musicians playing. So they kind of don't know their parts. They miscount. They come in at the wrong time. That sort of thing. And he plays um. A middle note of his triad twice um at one point to make it right. And orchestras just play this uh part cleanly and miss the humor. You know, they just play just straight through it like it's like just this nicely polished thing that Beethoven wrote. He's really going for humor here, and I really wish like orchestras would take that chance and sort of make it sound a little hmm. oh, I don't know when I'm coming in. And I don't think they want to be criticized. But I think we know this work well enough to enjoy that. Anyway, in this case they don't really bring out the humor of this section is just played straight through. Anyway, this is genuinely celebratory feeling to the movement. The fourth movement is the thunderstorm. Now, the rumblings of the approaching storm begin this track. Usually, the the, the cloudburst starts the track and we get the rumblings in the previous track. That's not the case here. And when that uh, cloudburst happens, whoa, man, you will be momentarily pinned back in your seat by the sound. The explosion from the bass drum really kind of makes you sit up in your seat when that yeah. happens. The movement is taken approximately, appropriately aggressively, even savagely, I would say, which I liked. It's supposed to remind you of a scary tempest, you know, the kind of thing that people run away from and hide. And, you know, maybe if you have children, you know, when all the lightning and thunder, they'll be like screaming mm-hmm. or something, you know, that kind of thing. Although I have to say... Uh, the Wrznicki recording we heard from the Academy for Alta Music uh, still wins the wow factor for me. <laughs> it's uh, it's percussion, those were really yeah. vivid. TNT uh, along there. with their tiptity bursts, yeah. Also, in this movement, piccolos, this very high pitched instrument are extremely upfront and shrill at a minute and 50 seconds onward. I thought that by now I had lost that frequency in my hearing, and I am happy to say it's still there as this recording demonstrated. <laughs> At two minutes and uh, 16 seconds, there's another sit-up-in-your-seat explosion from the orchestra, and the storm subsides in a beautifully attenuated way. A really well-thought-out performance of this movement, and really the work in general so far. There's a nice, nice warmth leading to the Thanksgiving movement, which is next. Fifth movement, Shepherd's song. Benevolent feelings of thanksgiving to the deity after the storm. This movement begins with the thanksgiving theme. Dun, 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 dun. Very famous. Uh, and it's taken at a pace that we're familiar with. So the gambit of the entire symphony's high speeds pays off here. We're finally calm. Because we've been sort of like in this kind of sort of like amped up, not tension, but slightly caffeinated uh, feeling all the way through. And now we're all relaxed and relieved let's say we've reached an in the rhythmic pocket tempo here and it's effective after all we've heard in this performance so far it sort of makes your whole body relax although as with the rest of the symphony the fortes are very upfront and the bass is powerful through the speakers at four minutes and 30 seconds there's an impactful pulsing rhythm from the winds and brass which the double basses pick up afterwards I'm happy to hear all these low-end details springing out of the texture and showing us how dancey so much of this symphony is. At 8 minutes and 10 seconds, the speaker saturation comes across as a bit shrill, but the sound quickly does a decrescendo. I love the timbre of the brass at 9 minutes and 45 seconds. Uh, the piece ends on a chord that's let go of rather quickly, not giving much time for the resolution to sink in. Usually you get like... Dun, dun, you know, and you feel this good sense of revolution. This piece almost does it like a staccato, dun, dun, and it's done. All right, so it's kind of odd. Anyway, really beautiful performance, though, otherwise. Mm. I thought the uh, there could have been a little bit more distance between the mic and the um, orchestra, although certainly the, the thunderstorm movement impacts <laughs> extremely well. And uh, it was it's an interesting interpretation, too, mostly fast and then kind of, you know, at the tempo we're familiar with in the last movement, and it really does have a relaxing impact on you. Okay, so after this, we get Stephen Stuckey's work, Silent Spring, written in 2011. Um, Stuckey was born in Hutchinson, Kansas, and the Pittsburgh Symphony commissioned this work, Silent Spring, in commemoration of the 50th anniversary of the publication of Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring. Uh, Carson was a native of Pittsburgh, as it turns out. Hmm. Honek uh, conducted the premiere in 2012, so this is familiar work for them. It's an interesting pairing with Beethoven's Pastoral Symphony, since it has to do with nature. <laughs> Except that <laughs> it's not as positive <laughs> yeah. as the Beethoven is. We'll get to that. In composing this work, Stuckey used uh, chapter titles. I hope I'm saying his name right, Stuckey. It's not like Stuckey or something, but I'm he's American, so I'm guessing it's going to be Stuckey. He used chapter titles in the book as his movement titles he refers to the work as a tone poem in four sections and the result he says is music at once abstract and programmatic okay so movement eh, okay I'll call the movements even though it's like a through composed work the first section is the sea around us these are all chapter titles from Rachel Carson's book by the way these um, movement titles. This starts with murky water music. This is the booklet note, by the way. Um, it rises from the depths of the orchestra until it reaches a grand but melancholy chorale evoking the vast expanses of the sea. Now, I said about this, it sounds like a rumbling piano bass starts this, like a, the mediant to tonic kind of um, slow trill, sort of, more tremolo. Um with some very cool low reedy instruments providing primeval bubbling as the individual instruments of the orchestra gradually come in and the sound's crescendo. By a minute and 18 seconds, we're more in the mid-range of the orchestra's sound. At a minute and 55 seconds, another big crescendo, and we're at a big forte at 2 minutes and 9 seconds. This attenuates at 2 minutes and 17 seconds very quickly, but rises again in the brass from that point to 2 minutes and 28 seconds. At three minutes and 20 seconds, the music quietens and we hear crystalline metal percussion and the piano leading into movement two, the Lost Woods. This is described in the booklet as a desolate chaconne. So it's kind of referring to the past here. The chaconne is a Baroque-era form, which is variations over a cyclic chord progression. This connection with the previous movement starts with a desolate chord, then a mournful melody on what I'm guessing is a muted trumpet. I couldn't really tell the movement quietens from there and becomes rather mysterious it's based heavily on its timbres so it's, it's more of like a like you could think of it French Debussyan, you know hmm. orchestral you know instrument coloring is really carrying the meaning by the end of the fourth minute we're at the peak of a loud crescendo with pounding percussion that leads into movement three rivers of death, death. <laughs> that was a chapter Ooh. title yeah. in uh, Silent Spring This is a short, scathing scherzo, and uh, it starts with a harsh brass-led chord. Um, There's barbaric percussion hammering away as the orchestra plays meandering lines. It suddenly quietens as the piano, accompanied by some brass, continues the percussion's rhythm and pitches thrown in. I have to say, the rhythm sounds measured in this movement and metronomic. I don't feel like it's breathing like it can, but I mean, these are the guys that premiered it, so I think they know what they're doing. It ends with a chord that ends to the next movement, which is Silent Spring, movement four. The previous movement bursts into ecstatic mass singing, according to the notes, which fall quiet one by one, like the insects and birds that Carson wrote about. Flurries of strings follow the chord with some metal percussion chimes hit hard. The quietening of the voices starts as a diminuendo and is well underway towards the third minute. Uh, The last minute is very close to silence, which features gentle bangs on a harp, or perhaps a piano's interior, with low reeds commenting with single tones. A lightly tapped cymbal has the last word. So this is a program with a happy Beethoven work, leading to a desolate, sad ending. (laughs) (laughs) In the Steven Stuckey piece. Um, excellent performances and a merely good DSD recording, in my honest. I think it was just too close. The Beethoven comes up sounding fresh and vigorous. The Stuckey had some interesting timbre combinations in it. I liked it enough. It didn't really captivate me, though. I think the performance could have been more aggressive, but it sounds like it's hard to play, so that may not have been an option. It's certainly listenable for those afraid of contemporary works, and this is an album worth hearing. I would urge you to hear this too, especially if you like the Beethoven pastoral. It's sort of a different take on it.
0: Yeah, I like this Beethoven. Not as much as uh, the previous one, but it's a lot of good interpretation here. I enjoyed the sonorous brass, the overall mood that they capture with the tempos. I like the sense of motion. It's a good recording, interesting interpretation. I actually enjoyed the silent spring, you know, despite the downer of it. <laughs> it's kind <laughs> of a downer. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to use this as a basis for your kind of tone poem, you, you kind of know, know what it's going to sound like, but. Yeah. That said, uh, despite the dark themes, I really enjoyed the excellent use of all the timbres in the orchestra. Yeah, like a was, lot of that. was really kind of an uh, artist of tone colors, and so I really enjoyed those points. And also, it's got good tension building and climaxes, so there's a good sense of sort of building up and releasing in the different movements. So like you said, if you're someone who doesn't... F- think they can follow contemporary works uh, so well. I think this one is pretty easy to uh, work through and it has, you know, certain points where you're going to feel tense things. They get resolved kind of nicely. And along the way, you get to hear all the colors of the orchestra used to good effect. So, yeah, I think it sounds about as good as it can for something that has you know, it's a good work. It's just yeah. kind of a downer. Rivers, of death. <laughs> yeah, rivers um, of death. Yeah, rivers of death.
1: Yeah, but that's the that, 19th century audiences would have loved stuff like that. They oh, just yeah. wanted to explore death and all of its um yeah. <laughs> ways. You know, <laughs> this is this is of course a 21st century work, though. Anyway, our, my third uh, choice for tonight. This is the uh, moment we've all been waiting for. My pronunciation of this. Oh yeah. Uh, composed Lithuanian composer's name. Uh, And here it is. Drum roll, please. Jibuakle <laughs> Martinetite. Martinetite is the yeah. family name. And uh, I'm going to sort of slightly anglicize this Martinetite. Okay, I'm not going to kind of say it like a Lithuanian. I don't think I can anyway. And the album is, um, as I said, she's Lithuanian by... By culture, I guess. She's born in uh, Russia in St. Petersburg, okay, to Lithuanian parents, okay? And she now lives in New York, by the way. Anyway, this, she was born in 1973. It's, it's a woman, too. We have a woman composer, for those of you who are um, really into that. I know we have at least one listener who is, because she's always telling me, you have to talk about more women composers. I wonder what people in New York call her, because I can't imagine they call her Gibois. They they yeah. She has to have a nickname. Anyway, maybe one day we'll interview her and we'll find out. Yeah. Anyway, she's a, she's uh, around your age, I think. She was born in 1973, so she's kind of closer yeah. to your age than yeah,
0: mine. A little younger than me.
1: but A little younger. Okay. And this is um album is called, this is her second album on the Ondine label called Ex Tenebris Lux, which means from the darkness, light. And can, this is played by the Lithuanian Chamber Orchestra, conducted by, oh, I should have looked this one up too. Carolis Variacogis. Hmm. You could fi- figure that out from that pronunciation. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. Okay. So, when uh, Martinetite was born, St. Petersburg was referred to as Leningrad, he might remember. Um, it was the Soviet Union then. Uh, her teachers included the celebrated composer Bronius Kudovicius, who was Lithuanian, who had declared musical independence from the modernist movement in Europe. And so did uh, very famous composers like uh, Arvo Pärt and Henrik Goretzky. Now, this is a good thing when we have all this opposition in music. Like, modernism was kind of, um, you know, it was all that 12-tone sort of things. We got some good things out of it, too, like uh, the music of Giorgio Ligeti, which I really like a lot. But these guys were going against that. And that's always a good thing because you get variety. I really like that. Mm. And um Tite's music is said to be a further development of the work of these composers. And boy, if you think of Arvo Pert's music as static, as not really moving much, hers moves a lot less than his, if you can imagine such a thing. <laughs> well, you won't have to imagine it. You can listen to this album. Her music is simultaneously expansive and restrained. I think that's actually a really excellent mm-hmm. description of it. But you have to hear it to really know what it sounds like. By the way, her other recording was called Saudade, and it came out in early in 2021. So, if you want to, if you like this one, you can go back to that one too. All of the works on this album are for string orchestra, and her music is fairly static, as I said, and seems to suspend temporal perception, which I believe is what the purpose of this music type of music is. Mm-hmm. It, it wants to give you, put you into that spiritual state of like timelessness. In these compositions, she's even more austere rarely straying from the diatonic scale, there are microtones at points, and she's always in 4-4 four, four time too, although you don't really get much of a sense of a pulse no. from this music at all, it just sounds like the word in the booklet note, the word soundscape is used very often, hmm. uh, and uh, that's really what these are, soundscapes, it's kind of hard to call it anything else. Um, If you think about, I actually wrote a, I can't remember where I said this, about music. What is music? Well, if you think of music as something with chords and a melody, you wouldn't think of what we're gonna hear here as music, even though it's Mm. appealing and kind of simple and kind of soothing.
0: I think this captures with, when you say scape and the movements we have here are seasons. Yeah. uh, The sounds kind of, to me, correspond to feelings and mm-hmm. senses that you'll have in those seasons. Um, yeah. So if you think of uh, winter as cold and brittle, yeah, you're going to hear sounds that evoke those kind of feelings. And uh, conversely, right. the summer and autumn have more warm tones and kind of greater feel of sustain. Right. Uh, so I could find identifiable yeah, me too. Uh, things, as you say. But you won't get a sense of rhythm uh, or, so melody much, or, or melody yeah, either. or melody yeah, or any changing kind of yeah basically like another that. definition of
1: music, the one that I tend to use um is um organized sound, so there's gotta be there's intellect in it, mm. and there's definitely intellect in this, okay now so what does that mean so I mean something like this is music, and traffic noise isn't music, although some people claim that traffic noise is music, but they have a different different definition. They don't, they don't have a definition for noise, basically, I think, mm. if they say traffic noise is music. but Because uh, I think that there's, there's got to be an intelligence in there, like uh, organizing principle. But then that calls, it comes into the question, John Gage's music, but... Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> we'll take this up some other day. Anyway, yeah, it's... um This sort of music, It's it, there's no pulse or anything like that, and the, really the whole thing relies on the timbres and the sort of different shadings that we hear in the string orchestra. And there are yeah. a lot of them. She really seems to pull every possible sound out of the strings. So this is more of the French influence, the 20th century French influence on music started by uh, Debussy. Well, like started by him, but he was the one who really made it a kind of carry meaning in his music. This is really what we're going to get here. Our sounds, soundscapes really. This is a big orchestra too and the first work personally i thought was the most interesting because it has percussion in it as well and that's really why it's called um i'll explain as we go nunc fluens nunc stans and i should have sent you these notes too that would have helped a lot this piece was written in 2020 so it's only two years old (laughs) it was and um the uh, percussionist is pavel junter now, if I hadn't told you there was percussion in this work and you weren't really paying attention, you might not have heard it because it doesn't boom out of the speakers like percussion often does. It's all very, very gentle as is the, um, the string playing. Basically, and let me give you a little bit of a description of the, um, that the booklet gives us here. Musicians play mostly whole notes, and they certainly do, <laughs> and tempo changes only twice, each time getting slower. The title comes from um, the book, The Consolation of Philosophy um, by 6th century medieval Roman philosopher Severinus Boethius, who you may have studied in school. The title is from a longer quote. The quote is, uh, the, the piece is called Nunc Fluens Nunc Stans. And the quote it comes from is, Nunc Fluens Facit Tempus, Nunc Stans Facit Eternitatum, which means, the now that passes creates time the now that remains creates eternity. And you do get a sense of eternity here. Now, in the booklet, there is no word that even evokes a sense of spirituality or things like that. She, she doesn't seem to want to say that. But whenever you're going timeless, you're going for some kind of a spiritual sort of uh, feel or trying to give the mm-hmm. listener something like that. She's not intentionally trying to do that. And she wants to just kind of you know interpret this um, name. But mm-hmm. um, I got that impression from it. The work was composed during the early months of the COVID pandemic in 2020. And the percussionist in this piece uh, plays a vibraphone at first. That's not a marimba. It's an actual vibraphone. Mm -hmm. Crotals, gongs, a bowed cymbal, and one tubular bell. And the percussionist anchors the arch of the entire work because the strings are really very, you know, just sort of spread out and sort of um, making their luminous sound, let's say. We hear the vibraphones first. They start tremolos. All right, let me go through this. Let me see. It starts out... This is me now. It starts at... Not the booklet anymore. Uh, This piece starts very atmospherically with the strings starting quietly and doing a gradual crescendo, um, sounding like a fade-in, okay? There's bowing sul ponticello, which means um, the violins or the strings play on or near the bridge, and that gives a more brittle, ghostly sound than the full... Sort of um, resonant tone that you get when you play where you're supposed to play, <laughs> or you know, just behind the neck. It's got a disembodied effect, and in begin the beginning, you hear only strings. Yet they're capable of a lot of timbres, and that's what you should be luxuriating in. The music is calm, but not warm. I find Sul Ponticello playing to be icy. And I guess, for being from Lithuania, that's appropriate um, for this composer. Um, There's a very light vibraphone hits uh, just before the second minute. The pulse is coming from the vibraphone, sounding like a wide tremolo as the sound sustains after the bars are gently hammered. Uh, The effects are manipulated over the next three minutes and a very gradual crescendo continues. Um, The vibraphone starts playing tremolos, then tremolos on two notes, and we start hearing the crotals at uh, 7 minutes and 10 seconds, so that's pretty far into the piece. Mm -hmm. So this is only the second percussion instrument we're hearing. It's a startling chiming sound because we've been in this gray world of vibes and strings for seven minutes. Um, By now, the strings have gone to a higher range and are fairly loud and eerie. There's that word again. At nine minutes, we hear a gong gently rumbling, another new timbre. And by the 10th minute, the gong sound is more present. Now, when you think of a gong, you usually think, but that's not what we get here. It's very gently hit. And resonates only a little bit. The sounds in this work shift so subtly that absolute attention is required if you're gonna follow it, but really you should just lay back and let it wash over you, I think. At about 10 minutes and 55 seconds you hear the cymbal being scraped on its side by the bass bow. Well, it's a kind of harsh sound, but again it's very quiet. It won't really, it's not disturbing really. All of the percussion in this work is very subtle. And because of the staticness of the entire work, these individual sounds emerge as revelations, but subtle ones. You have to be paying attention for them to make their gentle impact, which can go by unnoticed. For me, uh, the attention given to the work should be meditative. I noticed that I, I actually do meditation and uh, After that, you're just more sensitive to everything around you. So these little things that other people often don't notice, you will. And that happens in this piece too. There are things where if you're really attuned to it, these little beautiful details will just pop out of the score. This brings the work into a spiritual realm for me, which I'm sure that the composer intends, even though the booklet doesn't mention that. Um, The string texture shifts as the work goes on. By the 14th minute, the strings have diminuendoed quite a bit. We hear a single crotal hit at 14 minutes and 12 seconds. I'm hearing Sul Ponticello at the end, along with the gentle droning of the rest of the strings. And I'm sure other techniques were used in this piece that I probably didn't notice. Uh, The work does a natural fade at the end. And it's really, I thought this was pretty fascinating, actually. You could actually um, just, you know, play play this and kind of, it can kind of act as a, sort of white background noise while you fall asleep if you wanted it to. But it's to me, it kind of came across as more of of a a, a meditative work. Mm -hmm. Speaking of meditative, the next work, um, Ex Tenebris Lux, which is the title of the album as well, means From the Darkness Light for a string orchestra, no percussion here, has 18 string players, and they all have a unique part. This is also a musical response to the world health crisis. Um, This 25 minute continuous sonic arc starts from a very contained low and morose yet serene dirge to an expansive soundscape and spanning the entire range of the string orchestra that is ecstatic and radiant, again, big. The transformation is very gradual and the music is mostly long sustained chains of whole notes and tremolos. And there are a lot of you know, like coloring of the tone via Sul Ponticello and other effects as well. This has a similar opening to the previous. Actually, all of these works and every movement of the last work are going to come in as a fade-in sort of, mm. by, a natural fade-in by the uh, string orchestra. Uh, so it's a crescendo from nothing in the strings. In a way, she's kind of like, uh, at least these works. I got to hear more of her works. Uh, they're they're kind of like Bruckner, because, like, all of his symphonies, every one, all nine of them, and even the other ones, I think, start like uh, Beethoven's Night Symphony with the <laughs> with the string tremolos. Yeah. So, but she, her works sort of have this. All the works on this album, at least, have the um, that fade in sort of quality to it. Um, the strings are droning all at a very low end at the beginning, and there are wisps of changing tones. Uh, bowed out by the cellos the composer's inventiveness um draws out other sounds soup cello and they're also deep pizzicati i guess gently plunked and left to ring now sometimes these are pizzicati and sometimes they're the sound of the wooden end of the bow hitting the string all right so Mm. there's, there's, there's a subtle difference between the two i would swear that uh the pizzicato, sound, or the bow hitting the string sound, is a percussion instrument because it doesn't sound like strings really. The tonal field does break up for some sul ponticello shutters and other subtle effects articulated by the bow's position on the strings. At 2 minutes and 15 seconds, more active, relatively speaking, lines emerge in the higher string instruments, which sounds skeletal and dry given the position of the bow on or behind the bridge. At 3 minutes and 20 seconds, the music pulls back and we hear a pizzicato and a deeper drawn-out drone on the basses as the work achieves more solidity of sound. Crescendo into the fourth minute, and events, musical events if they can be called that, are very fleeting in this work while crescendos occur over long periods of time. At 7 minutes, I'm registering a real somberness to this. It really is the color gray, but it's emerged from blackness to that, so it sounds brighter. In the way that gray is brighter than black. <laughs> okay. It's all a question of what you were made familiar with before. I really do like that when you, you have these limited sort of um, mm. things and you really make something of it, which is sort of what's happening here. At around 7 minutes and 50 seconds, more brightness comes in and even a spaciousness as the higher strings sound more separated and more concrete in their lines. At 9 minutes and 30 seconds, there's almost a wildness to the sound and a loss of gravity as it veers downwards in frequency. I feel like I'm free-falling here. Um, Not pulled by gravity, but by direction. There's a pizzicato, which is really the wooden part of the bow hitting the strings at 10 minutes and 33 seconds and onwards. That's what I think it is anyway. Articulating a broad rhythmic figure. It comes as a surprise, as does any change with all the subtle repeating activity we've been hearing over time for over 10 minutes now. There's still 16 minutes to go. Oh, man. (laughs) The basses are now droning in full voice at the beginning of their attack, but moving the bows more toward the bridge as the sound is sustained, subtly changing it. At 12 minutes, 28 seconds, there's a sudden quiet. We hear the bow hitting the strings, and quick bowing brings a light crescendo of the main material in the ensemble. 15th minute, we reach a higher frequency in the violins, with the various attacks on the instruments sounding the same. And we've arrived here via a continuing crescendo, and we continue to hear quick back and forth bowing, as well as droning tones, and much else in the texture. It's captivating for the ears. Not much is happening tonally, yet there's still quite a bit to take in. Uh, this has always been a fascinating effect for me, having like a lot of different things happening at the same time, but it's not moving. You know, you know the harmony isn't moving mm-hmm. a crescendo to the loudest volume we've heard so far occurs in the 17th minute which results in cascading loud to soft waves of sound in the 18th minute in the 19th minute we're hearing quick bowing on single notes high up in the violins while basses anchor the texture with droning tones in the 21st minute the texture evens out to long bow droning tones with some way up in the stratosphere there are rumblings in the bass as a serenity settles over the soundscape in the 22nd and 23rd minutes, the music gradually decrescendos with glissandi in the lower instruments, giving me a sense of shooting stars. It's a really lovely conception, I thought. Might take a little getting used to for some people. Third to sixth movements of the final piece. This is called, uh, it's a Finnish word, silun maisema. You know, we have a Finnish friend. I should have written to him so that he could tell me how to say this, <laughs> but I didn't. Anyway, silun maisema. It's uh, for cello and string orchestra, and it was written in 2019 before the pandemic. This is the only work on this uh, album that was written before the pandemic. The cellist is Rokas Vaitkevisius, and he's Lithuanian too, I would guess. So this year we've done works about the Four Seasons. We've done Vivaldi on the uh, on the mandolin, yeah. which I, I should listen to that again. That was really great. Yeah, it was fun. I haven't one. heard it in a while. Yeah, And Piazzola's Four Seasons in Buenos Aires. And here we get another take on the four seasons, Um, but a very different one than the (laughs) other two. Uh, The cello doesn't function as a soloist in this, but rather offers a contrast in texture to all the other string parts. Uh, The title is a Finnish word, and it means, and it's kind of a description rather than a word meaning, a soul landscape. I guess that's the Mm -hmm. definition, a soul landscape, or a particular place that a person carries deep in the heart and returns to in memory. So, think mm-hmm. about uh what was, what was that place in Lord of the Rings that uh, Aragorn liked <laughs> where the elves lived. I can't remember now. Oh, that that would be a good idea, a good I think approximation of the title. I'm trying to think of what it is. <laughs> It's all it's all disappearing now. All the listeners are saying, oh, they know, they're know they shouting it out at me now, probably. <laughs> anyway, the piece reflects a native environment as seen through the prism of four seasons. So, it's supposed to be the same space, but as reflected through the four seasons. So again, a nice concept, I thought. Well, it starts with winter, which has an extremely slow tempo, a slow crescendo in, uh, this time starting on a stratospherically high note on a violin, underpinned by some lower tones and harmony. We hear a lot of Sul Ponticello rasp. All is very gentle and rather ghostly. At a minute and 48 seconds there is silence. Then at one minute and 50 seconds another gradual crescendo in with high tones and some atmospheric sliding notes. Silence again at two minutes and 45 seconds lasting longer this time. And then a cello note crescendos and other instruments come in with Sul Ponticello playing. At three minutes and 18 seconds there's an ostinato pattern uh, that quickly fades. This silence is followed by quiet, icy patterns, and that continues. And it's hard to tell when the solo cello is actually playing. Usually he's playing something in a different sort of timbre mm-hmm. than everyone else, so you can kind of take him out. I'm pretty sure it's him at 5 minutes and 38 seconds or so. He only comes in for brief times, then decrescendos out. We'll hear more of him later, actually. There's one instrument playing slow glissandos up and down the fretboard very slowly. That could very well be him. Um, the movement ends on a high note after a glissando. This work is going to have a lot of these mm, siren-like glissandos (laughs) in it, but not loud like a siren. They're actually very quiet. Second movement, spring. Fastest paced music on the entire album and some of the loudest, but don't get excited. There's really no (laughs) really fast rhythm in this. After what we've heard in the program so far, this comes as a surprise. It sounds almost like a proper orchestral opening for a big orchestral piece. Now when I say proper, what does that mean? It means traditional. What I mean is what we expect from a traditional orchestral work from the early 20th or 19th century. More like the 20th century, actually. But it quickly moves into spread chords with a wide frequency spectrum. This composer really likes quick agitated bowing, and we get that mm. here again. The playing and spread almost recalls the third movement of Sibelius' fifth symphony to me. Um, there are some gorgeous harmonics in the texture, a sound I really love. Martinetite's signature droning combined with rapid bowing is heard throughout. The music basically drones, then bursts into quiet, rapid two-note figures, while other strings slowly glissando. It's very, instead of unsettling, I said it's very settling. And though it's some of the loudest music on the album, none of it really reaches a forte. The music is more active in the last three minutes. The movement does a natural fade at the end. Third movement, Summer, is slower and quieter atmospheric music, Uh, suggestive of the unhurried unfolding of the pitches of a raga, according to the notes. Hmm. I kind of get what she's saying there. And there's a droning double bass that kind of makes you feel like that too. Um, This didn't really sound like Indian music to me, so don't get too excited. (laughs) <laughs> this is a natural fade-in with faint siren-like up-and-down glissandos. This is very quiet for the entire first minute. Gradually crescendos up. The cello is heard in contrast around the one minute 50-second mark. Um, the raga comparison is a little tenuous in my opinion, but I can hear what she means. Uh, the cello is exposing certain tones. It'll glissando and then hang out on a tone like in the alop section of a raga at the very beginning where the soloist is kind of playing the notes that he's gonna use or she is gonna use during the uh, main part of the performance. Um, this movement quietly drones throughout with the cello perpetually sliding to new long-held tones. It's actually rather soothing, I thought.
0: Hmm.
1: And the fourth movement, Autumn, uh, continues the drone-saturated sonic environment of summer and it's gotta fade in like <laughs> like every <laughs> other thing we've heard on this. All of the works on this album have started this way Uh, This becomes more of a bubbling and sul ponticello agitation, but again, long drones like the previous movement. The cello plays something akin to a melody, but with long-held notes, and of course he doesn't stand out much. There's some brief crescendos to about a mezzo forte, with some agitation in the bass, like bursts of sunlight coming out of the clouds. It sounds like it's ending at 5 minutes and 40 seconds as there's a natural fade, but more serene, smooth-held tones come back in, with some agitation, Sul Ponticello in the lower end. It moves slowly to a natural fade at the end. Okay, basically, this is a big 70-minute soundscape. <laughs> and I have to say, I rather liked this. Uh, the first piece is gentle droning, combined with various percussion instruments. Um, gave a sense of stillness, a still point that the rest of the world moves around to settle in on me. Okay, this sort of settled in on me while listening. Uh, Was this music satisfying? I'd say yes, but the question is in what way? Um, There are people who wouldn't identify this, as I said, as music, thinking that music has to have moving parts, and these works are even more static than Arvo Pertz. I'd say this is satisfying as sound, and yes, as music too, if you think of music as intelligently organized sound, which is how I think about it. I left it feeling different than I did when I started listening. It sort of transformed me a little bit. It's not for everybody, I have to say, so you have to check it out, I guess, to see if this is your thing. I'm just trying to give you an idea of what you're going to hear if you want to take the plunge with this. It's not off-putting, and I think it could act as a mild uh, sort of mind cleanser. If you're someone who likes sound and its effects, this is definitely for you. Personally, I'm happy to have it, and I'm sure I'll listen to it again.
0: Yeah, these are static works, as you said. I wrote that too. Mostly what's going on here is about changing tones and lots of textures of sound. There's not rhythmic things happening so much as bow textures uh, in what the strings are doing. I think it's enjoyable if you're in a mood to go into a kind of zone, Yeah. and that zone is uh, what I would say is more of a holistic type of listening, rather than detailed focus. You're not going right. to come away from here whistling motifs <laughs> Or tapping out rhythms They're just not there In fact you're not going to be Whistling at all (laughs) (laughs) But but it does create A soundscape Like you say It's sort of a A panorama of things Shifting and changing Different kind of Tonal scenes Not really rhythms So much as As I said Textures uh, That move around So it's kind of interesting I would just put it on And kick back And uh, I think take it in As a whole and you'll get the most out of, you know, how it makes you feel and how you respond to the different sounds. You're not really listening to counterpoint and lines uh, intersecting and, and changing meters or anything. I think a lot of listeners will fall asleep
1: listening to this, to be <laughs> it, honest. It, it takes a lot enough. of energy and concentration if you really want to just actually listen to it.
0: Anyway, something different. Uh, it's not hard to listen to was. at all. So
1: Not at yeah. all. Um. Yeah, you could easily fall asleep to this too, because once it, it can sound like white noise to certain ears. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's kind of because it doesn't move much, you know. So like with like the
0: wave machine,
1: yeah. <laughs>
0: okay. But like I say, if you're a if you're a listener into uh, sounds and tones, and uh, and that would of, be me. You're intrigued by different instruments and the sounds that are possible, f- even from you know the regular string instruments. You do get a lot of interesting things happening. And if you're a string player, too, you might be intrigued by the different techniques and bowing that's going on here. So
1: Yeah, this would be interesting for string players to play, I'd bet. Hmm. It would take a lot of attention, I can yeah. tell you that.
0: Boy. Anyway, if you fall asleep after this one, I'm, I'm going to wake you up now. Yeah. <laughs> with some big, booming, bursting, big band music and lots of brass. Brass? You know, it's uh, kind of a big band renaissance these days. There's a lot of big band happening, which is a great thing uh, because there's so many possibilities. And we're going to get a mix of old and new going on here. And uh, I've got some more big band recordings, too, from around the world. But we're going all American today. I just picked up some that came out over the summer. I'm going to start out with the Dave Sloniker big band. And their release that came out in the middle of August on Origin Records called Convergency. Now, Sloniker has an interesting background as a film and TV orchestrator, arranger, and composer. And he's the leader of his big band, obviously, under his name. But this is their second album, the first of which, Intrada, which also had all of his own compositions and arrangements. So we got all original music here as well. They got a uh, 2013 Grammy nomination for Best Large Jazz Ensemble Album. And in his work as a uh, film and TV orchestrator composer, he arranged for many Hollywood composers, uh, some big names, John Addison, David Bell, Steve Bramson, Bruce Broughton, and Denny Elfman, that's a big name for you, among others. Uh, His credits include orchestration for many popular films, including Oz the Great and Powerful, Alice in Wonderland, Spider-Man, Air Force One, and he's also done some TV music composition and arranging for uh, Jag, Murder, She Wrote. Uh, and the Tiny Toons Adventures cartoon series. Must be fun to do some cartoon music as well. So he's uh, equally at home as a composer and arranger. He's done arrangements that have been played by uh, Clark Terry, Woody Herman, and Count Basie orchestras, and other bands as well. He originally is from uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and started out as a trombone player in his youth. So here, Convergency, And uh, we've got quite a cast of players here. I'll go through the sections quickly before we get into the tunes. On woodwinds, we've got Bob Shepard, alto soprano and soprano sax and flute. Brian Scanlon, also alto, soprano, sax, flute, clarinet. Bob Lockhart, tenor sax and clarinet. Tom Lure, tenor sax and clarinet. Adam Schroeder on baritone sax and bass clarinet. And Jay Mason, baritone sax and bass clarinet. Trumpets and flugelhorns, Wayne Bergeron, Dan Fornero, Ryan DeWeese, Clay Jenkins, Ron Stout on trombone, Alex E.S., Charles Morias, Ido Meshulam, and Bill Reichenbach on bass trombone and tuba. We've got electric guitar on a couple tracks, Larry Kuntz. Piano is Ed Zach, C-Z-A-C-H, that is. And Mm -hmm. bass, Edwin Livingston. Drums, we've got Peter Erskine, that's a big name for you and percussion, Brian Kilgore, and also produced by Dave Sloniker. recording is by Rich Breen. So we'll start out with the title track, Convergency. This is like a a straight beat, almost like hoedown with brass, that starts out, kind of a cool uh, beginning right from the start. The saxes take over with uh, brass stabs on top of that, and then uh, things get swinging. It switches up to more of a Latin feel, which seems to be a hallmark of his tunes. Uh, They'll go between swing and Latin a lot. That comes up a lot as we go through here. It's back to a swing feel again. Nice walking bass uh, for a trumpet solo here from Clay Jenkins. Uh, There are great horn backing lines that become more syncopated. A nice sax soli section that gets broken up by bass trombone, uh, and then building horn exchanges and more added drums. Next up, there's a berry solo from Adam Schroeder uh, that works into stop time with horn punctuations for a while uh, before more backing legato horn lines come in over walking bass. Uh, the rhythm comes to a stop and a reset for uh, Ed uh, Zach to get a piano solo. Uh, things get walking again and the horns add backing building up to a soli into a full band arrangement and then things change back up to the original, even beat for a bit, but the drums pull the full band back into exchanges of swinging and a big finish so a nice high energy start uh to the album the beginning of this actually with those repeating chords kind of reminded yeah. me do
1: you know that piece uh john adams's piece uh short ride in a fast machine
0: oh yeah 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 it kind of yeah. reminded yeah. me a little okay. bit okay. of that i was like, oh, yeah. it's
1: kind of just kind of mm. that came to mind when i heard that anyway yeah. i just wanted to put that out there
0: cool uh yeah. i like this title <laughs> uh uncommonly ground <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> talking that about his coffee <laughs> Oh, you know, yeah. <laughs> Not uncommon ground, but uncommonly ground. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Nice little uh, idea there. Uh, bass and left hand piano start this one out, setting up an even beat groove for sax lines to form over. More horns join in with bass, clarinet, flute, some harmon muted trumpet, making a really nice tonal blend. Uh, the feel becomes more Latin feeling with additional percussion. It simmers down to a uh, drums and bass backing for a relaxed start to a guitar solo from. Larry Kuntz. Horn lines float over into a transition to a fluid tenor sax solo from Tom Lure. The horns build behind him as he reaches a climax fed by the drums. Uh, there's a little interlude with bass and piano, left hand riffs, conga, and the horns stack and build up. Then the Latin percussion fills in the gaps and pushes Lure on to some more soloing as the horns layer on top with big blasts to the end. Uh, real powerful playing. Three, duality. That's D-U-E-L-I-T-Y, like a dual, yeah, Yeah, duality. D-U-E-L, yeah, Yeah. So like a word we would make up. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, (laughs) I mean, we may be doing that tonight, in fact, given some of these titles we've been
1: throwing around, I don't know.
0: This one's a Latin groove with good cymbal work, piano improv for an intro, trumpet and sax, each, one each take the first melody strain, and it gets passed around then through muted trumpet and uh, sections of the band, till a switch to swing, and then a full-on swinging sax-sully section uh, with brass punctuation added there. Bob Shepard is up for a trumpet solo. The groove switches up between Latin and swing. Uh, He keeps his lines in the middle register with rhythmic figures as saxes swirl and horns stab. A full band swinging horn arrangement comes out into an alto sax solo from Bob Shepard, and it thins out under his solo for a bit. Before introducing more horn backing lines as the field changes up again between Latin and swing, I use a big fat alto sound and intense blowing here. Things simmer a bit to build up the horn arrangement. And I like how Sloniker uses the bass trombone to stick out on its own and then layers in the other sections, that real powerful kind of accents. Uh, Stout and Shepard get some more solo exchanges as the horns build up around them to a final big exchange with drums to the end. Track four is a gathering circle. It's a rubato start here with an arrangement of only wind instruments. And I should mention the, the beginning of
1: this. You said the wind instruments, mm. and it, it kind of there's something Aaron Copeland like about this yeah, to me. Yeah. Um, yeah, it had this that, that nighttime quiet brass chorus. We, right. Last week we heard Quiet City, and I was kind of thinking a bit oh, about yeah, yeah. the whole yeah, sound of that, like and this kind of put me in mind of that or something by him anyway.
0: Yeah, it almost gets like choral like. Uh, Until the rhythm section comes in with a medium Latin beat, uh, nicely placed conga hits in the time there. Uh, It sounds like flute and flugelhorn working on the silky lines in the arrangement. It's a really good horn arrangement with rhythmic figures and more legato parts integrated into it. Uh, The horns become really legato and connected into a soprano sax solo from Brian Scanlon. Uh, He has an actual pretty tone, which you don't always hear on soprano sax. No car horns here. This is really nice. Uh, Lush backing lines with flute and muted trumpets. The horn arrangement floats and the rhythm section builds up into a guitar solo from Larry Kuntz. Uh, He's fluid, but with nicely articulated accents here. The horns build up behind him into great soaring trumpet top line, and then the horns grow and carry it until it softens for some space for Erskine to build it up on drums as the horn's stack up again and then have falling lines into a soft final chord. Track five's a curve in the road. This one has light drums that set the swing feel for thick horn figures with muted trumpets. A more swinging feel and riffs emerge with an unexpected pause on the way into big horn lines. Clay Jenkins comes out of that with a trumpet solo. Uh, the arrangement leaves him floating over just drums before horns kick in to a good effect and the solo baton is passed on to Tom Leur on tenor sax. The horn lines come in, push him on, and then build after his solo ends in layers. Uh, Things get really swinging tightly into a groove for an alto solo from Brian Scanlon. uh, Nice horn stabs and low sax scoops come along, and Scanlon has a thick alto sound, hard swinging lines that weave around the arrangement. Then we get a full band arrangement that gets swinging, but it pulls back to get some assistance from the drums to build up, uh, from longer tones and into another swinging full band section, and the bass and piano riff sticks below as the horns pile on and the drums power the lines to another big ending. Track six is called Inner Voices. This one has an even beat feel with bass and bass clarinet working a rhythmic line. That's really nice. Uh, I always like to get bass clarinets in a big band. Oh yeah. uh, le- Legato trumpet and sax get added on top with more soft layers, Uh, ron stout comes out with a trumpet solo Uh, he gets a relaxed space to start and has a big warm tone rich backing lines reminiscent of gil evans here i thought those kind of rich tonalities swirl and push him on into a full band arrangement with very nice intersecting lines from all the band sections Rob Lockhart is up next for a tenor solo. Uh, He blows easily, but with nice rhythmic feel as the Latin feel of the tune intensifies here and the horns add backing lines. Lockhart cranks it up for a climax to his solo and the band really soars uh, with trumpets on high for a bit before it pulls back. And then Stout and Lockhart get some further exchanges as the band comes in uh, for some contrasting full power blasts and softer exchanges to end it. Track 7, Sometimes a Notion. There's a nice trombone and bass line to start with answering band phrases, kind of reminiscent of uh, So What from yeah. Miles Davis. I wrote do- that too. Da- yeah. Dude do- da- picked, right, do- picked that out right away. You picked it up, yeah. <laughs> uh, very nice yeah. sax lines, and then brass flow through the arrangement. It simmers down for a trombone solo from Alex Elias. Uh, the rhythm wants to swing more, I feel, but it gets into some tasty stop time for horn figures. Uh, AS is really swinging his lines nicely until Lockhart takes over on a tenor solo. Uh, he has some great interplay with the horn backing lines, creating anticipation with hesitation in his phrases. It comes to a pause and a reset. Uh, to build up from bones and bass and the trumpets and then sax sections come stacking on top. They all get swinging and then part to reveal a bass solo from Edwin Livingston. Uh, He exchanges confident lines with full band swinging lines and it pulls back a bit for a few lines from A.S. and Lockhart and then Livingston gets the final say on bass. Track eight is Vanishing Point. This one's a rubato but rhythmic intro on piano to get it going, drum toms add in, and then cymbals and swelling brass lines still in a rubato feeling. There's a pause, then toms and bass set the stage for an airy melody line on soprano sax from Shepherd, with dancing muted horn backing, and nice lines from the bass clarinet as well. Uh, the 6 beat feel is a medium tempo and cool, allowing for lots of textures in the arrangement. Shepherd comes out with a soprano solo, the bass lines below create a nice contrast with the legato horn backing lines that turn more to stabs. The horns switch to more legato, Gil Evans-like lines for contrast over cymbals and toms from Erskine, and then there's accordion-like woodwind lines, you have to listen to it to see what I mean, and more rhythmic horn figures that give space to more sax lines from Shepherd. And there's more groovy bass clarinet before a pause and Shepherd's soprano ticks it up to some final Tom ideas from Erskine. Track nine and now the news. A powerful Latin beat with Latin percussion and a bass and left- hand piano line get it going. Great thick trombone lines get layered on top of that. then saxes, then trumpets all weave over this groove. Oh, this is a really great horn arrangement on this tune. Uh, a trombone section. Soli comes next and impresses with some cool, fast articulation. A muted and voice-like trombone solo comes out, catching some bluesy licks from Ilias. Morias is next for a more full-powered trombone solo as the band changes up uh, to driving swing and then tempo increases. Great solo. Uh, The band simmers for a bit uh, over the groove with a building full band arrangement. Uh, Next, bass trombone solo from Bill Reichenbach. It's way down there in the horns. Uh, back with taut phrases. Then there's another trombone solo. I'm not sure, by now, there's a lot of trombone going on. Is this (laughs) Ido Meshulam? The order is different from the notes. Anyway, it's really swinging, and uh, now all the trombones start exchanging phrases. Uh, The band builds it up into a rhythmic trombone exchange, then full-bore, searing whole band arrangement, and the bones doodle underneath before the horns stack up and make a muted ending. Uh, Really, really cool arrangement on this tune. And The last tune, the only one that's not uh Slonica original, is called I Had the Craziest Dream. This is Harry Warren and Mac Gordo tune. Long muted notes over rhythmic piano figures set the stage here for Wayne Bergeron to emerge with a trumpet melody. It's rubato and lush. Bass trombone and trombones get a slow kind of rocking tempo without the rhythm section. Uh, for Bergeron to float this melody. It's all very rich brass, brilliant arranging here. Cascading lines fall and then build around the trumpet until midway bass and cymbals finally kick in to establish a swinging groove. Bergeron gets cranked into swing and animation as his lines light up into double time figures, then soaring lines. Sax lines swing in and the lines build to huge crescendos In the bones and trumpets before the rhythm section, drops out again leaving trumpet and horns to finish it. You know maybe I like this tune uh, best of all, even though it's not his original song, just for the beauty of the arranging. It's a real dreamlike quality and I love Bergeron's mercurial changing to match the evolutions of the arrangement. Sonorous brass, rich timbres, and really great phrasing. Really great uh, final piece. Uh, So this is a really long recording. When I Listen to it the third time intently, though. It really passed by quickly just because there's so many great, you know, lines of different tones matched. You can tell his experience as a film composer and, you know, writing different kinds of soundtracks. He just knows how to use each instrument to its uh, best tonal character and for what he wants to express. Uh, Fabulous musicianship changing rhythmic feels a lot. (laughs) You don't know if it's swing or Latin. Mm. Uh, Tonal variety from flute and bass clarinet, bass trombone, good mute combinations on the brass. Great big band uh, music with roots to the past, hints to Evans, but creative freshness uh, in his approach too. And all except the last track is original material. So a really great forward pushing and creative modern uh, big band recording here. Yeah. And it's
1: also a really impressive recording. Uh, yeah. I thought the, uh, the ensemble, everybody was captured really well and all this really crisp brightness to it. It just sounded really mm. good, cushiony on the ear. Too. It's, it's just really great. Um, the ensemble in the brass was really tight. Like you, I liked the arrangements. I wrote that. I thought these were really interesting arrangements, hmm. um, especially when they put in counter melodies and became more adventurous that way. You yeah. sometimes get a bit of that going. That always appeals to my classical ear, really. When yeah, counterpoint is cool. Are do that. Yeah. It's an intensely musical album with lots of class, I said. It's yeah. Kinda, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. No attempts are made to blow away the listener. And I like it when that happens personally, when a big band is kind of just playing musically rather than trying to really wow you. Although, you know, they do that just through their musicality, really. Yeah. I like the straightforward arrangements and I feel like, uh, they just serve the tunes, which I thought was great. Yeah. And they're his original tunes and you really want that. Um, yeah. so yeah, this was great. And long, I, it took me a few, I, I didn't get through it for two days, but I really did enjoy all of it. It just kind of,
0: I just have these short listening periods that yeah. I use yeah. to listen to these sometimes. It's great though. It, it really draws you in. I mean, you don't know these tunes because they're all original, but the way right. they're presented really pulls you into them mm-hmm. and, uh, they start to become familiar right away. So yeah, definitely check this out. I can see why yeah. he got that Grammy nomination. Ah, nice to see him win something for an album of original music. Uh, maybe right. this time. All right. We're going to go uh, with someone who's been on the podcast a few times. Uh, Who we really like. I like very a active too. musician here. Yeah. Stephen Feifke, the pianist. Yeah. And uh, now this recording kind of picks up on a theme we had uh, last week with uh, Steve Therese, album Generations and the idea was that uh, he came up always playing with older players uh, when he was young and now he's sort of an elder statesman and brought in some other uh, senior players and uh, younger players together uh, for that recording and so here a similar title Generation Gap Jazz Orchestra and so uh, Five Keys here uh, as the composer arranger orchestra and conductor, and he's got a uh, co-leader here in the trumpeter, uh, Bijan Watson. And they've got a lot of big names here. Feifke seems really busy. <laughs> he's always recording yeah. uh, something new. And uh, so it says here uh, about this uh, recording, the long-standing tradition spearheaded by artists like Art Blakey and Horace Silver of hiring the young guns for an ensemble has all but disappeared in recent years. Uh, in creating the Generation Gap Orchestra, Bijon and Stephen make the objective of this band to strengthen that tradition of mentorship that has shaped and defined the jazz idiom since its earliest beginnings. Uh, so we got a mix of players here. And uh, we featured uh, Stephen Feifke's previous big band recordings. And going back to episode 11, uh, <laughs> that was uh, his recording, Kinetic. That was uh, yeah. the episode title, was killer bees Bach, Busoni, Bruckner, and big band <laughs> yeah back um, when we
1: had long titles so yeah. we still sometimes do i'm still yeah. listening to that one by the way kid yeah, a good one. got that on time
0: that was time. uh actually on our best of 2021 uh list yeah, as well absolutely yeah and then we i guess it was maybe recorded before that but came out after in 2021 was a prologue and uh that we featured in uh, episode 34, uh, Big Band Booze Up. <laughs> Boy, we liked those titles back then. Yeah, and, we did. Uh, that was a good one, though. Yeah. I like that one. And last year, we were drinking
1: a lot more booze back
0: then, yeah. too. I think we've kind of <laughs> cut back yeah. now. I, mean, you know. I can't make it to the end without slurring my my lines <laughs> if I uh, have some booze. Uh, and I don't know if it was recorded a couple of years before or not, but uh, at least it came out on streaming last year, Season Swinging Greetings. So if you're looking for a Christmas album, check that one out. Uh, yeah, that, that's on my playlist for this yeah. um, this Christmas. Yeah. Yeah. And then also earlier this year in April, he had a, a trio, piano trio recording, uh, Stephen Feifke, the role of the rhythm section, which is also yeah. really good, although we didn't talk about it on the podcast.
1: Yeah. And uh, that particular one was never released on a CD, which is kind of odd because no. this one is, this yeah. new one.
0: Yeah. I always wonder about that. Yeah, and this one is on uh, Cellar Live label, Corey okay. Weeds' uh, label uh, here with this recording. So let's go through. Uh, Stephen Feifke, as I said, co-leader, piano, arrangements, and orchestrations. Bijon Watson, co-leader, lead, trumpet. I've got a few guests. We've got uh, Chad. Now he calls himself Chad ALB on the notes, but it's Chad Lefkowitz Brown. Uh, we also heard the the kind of virtual big band, that he recorded during the pandemic, uh, which was a really cool album as well. He's here on uh, tenor sax, just on track one. We've got Kurt Elling lending his voice to a couple tracks, uh, and also the trumpeter Sean Jones guesting on two tracks. The regular uh, band section, saxes, Alexa Tarantina on alto saxophone and flute. Christopher McBride, on alto saxophone and flute. Thomas Lure, uh, tenor saxophone and flute. Roxy Koss, tenor saxophone and flute. And Lauren Sivian, baritone sax. Trumpet, Bijan Watson, who we just mentioned, trumpet and flugelhorn, Tanya Darby, also Mike Rodriguez, who we've heard before. And uh, rounding them out, Danny Jono Cucci. Trombone, John Fedchuk, Javier Nero, Kalia Vandiver, and Jennifer Wharton on bass trombone. Oh, wow. You don't hear yeah. that much of that, really. Yeah, Will Bram on guitar, and Dan Chimelinski on bass. This Owens Jr. on drums. Uh, executive producer is Corey Weeds, also sharing uh, with that Stephen Fife and Bijan Watson, for producing credits, and mixed and mastered by Dave Darlington. All right, we're going to start out with a uh, 5Q original, I've Got Algorithm. <laughs> so it's uh, based, <laughs> oh, a great on, title. Yeah, based on rhythm yeah. changes. and So piano and rhythm section take it around uh, the rhythm changes once to start it out at a really pretty fast tempo. A swinging sax section arrangement comes in with brass stabs and brass uh, taking over on the B section. Saxes trade solo lines with huge brass backing, trading off with uh, Chad LB. Roxy Koss, uh, Thomas Lure. Uh, I think it's uh, Chad Lefkowitz-Brown who gets a longer solo here for himself. Uh, Then more sax trading. Then we've got Mike Rodriguez on a trumpet solo. Uh, The horn lines are constant fun, uh, backing them up and then exchanging with drum, building up after the solo, swinging hard to the final furious and screaming end. There's a lot of screaming ends (laughs) on here (laughs) uh, in the trumpets. An exciting track, really. Yeah. Yeah. Now track two, we're going to get... Kurt Elling join in on this tune, Sassy. The credits for writing this one, Bentin, Bodine, Siegel, and Elling. The drums kick in, a funk beat with some horn lines into funky electric bass and hand claps. Uh, Elling's the star here with the lead vocals. Uh, there's some cool muted trumpet backing lines and Elling adds bluesy vocalizations uh, between his main lines. There are breakdowns section with uh, just vocals over drums and a little bass fills from the bass here. There's some funky wah-wah guitar and Elling overdubs for thick backings in his own vocals. There's a tasty alto solo here from uh, Christopher McBride. The end really builds up with uh, full band horn lines, Elling's layered vocals, and more solo sax to a crazy descending septuplet electric bass line to finish it off.
1: I suspect this is a different... Um, version of this then on his album Super Blue. Is this this out. The, Super Blue just this came song, out last Blue, year, right. I think. Okay. And this was on that. So um, right, it's it's the second track on that. But I'm guessing this is a different. I didn't yeah compare with the horn the lines
0: and everything. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's a different band. Okay, anyway.
0: And the third track is a big band arrangement of a Joe Henderson tune, Inner Urge. So it's got a drum intro into some alto and barry sax lick exchanges from Alexa Tarantino and Lauren Sevian. Uh, they sync up rhythmically over the melody, and then the band takes over the theme with saxes swinging hard and good brass counterlines. Tarantino screams out of the arrangement with an alto solo. I like her floating phrasing with some uh, phrase gaps and accents. The bones get a cool backing line behind that. And then trumpets blast in, too, as Sevian takes over on Barry sax. She blows intensely, digs low, and gets some edge on her tone. More bones backing and stacking on trumpets to a cool sax solely line that builds to a full band arrangement. Then we've got uh, Ulysses Owens Jr., who has been kicking it up hard on the drums all the way underneath. Uh, it thins out to have the saxes trade the opening phrases again, and then builds up to some final trumpet screams above the band. Then we're going to bring back Kurt Elling for track four until a sting tune. And, uh. This one always reminds me of uh, Jim Croce's uh, Time in a Bottle, because it says something like that in the lyrics too. Uh, It's kind of a waltzing Mm -hmm. thing. Uh, We get a nice stacking of woodwinds and uh, brass with lower blasts for an intro uh, that builds, and then it gets into a waltz tempo for Elling to come in with the vocals. Uh, There are a lot of swirling horn lines and accented blasts through the different sections, and Feifke adds nice piano textures below. Uh, Elling does a good job going from very tender to more forceful, and he keeps his own with the horns when they come in. Feifke has a piano solo midway. He makes it a bit bluesy, has some creative rhythmic ideas in his lines, and the band gets a shot at the melody with a full ensemble arrangement before Elling returns. It comes down with just horns under Elling, uh, softer with flutes and flugels, and then gets thick with lower brass over effects added on layers of Elling's vocals. Now we've got another five key original, Scenes From My Dreams. Uh, Drums kick it in, keep a heavy slow beat for a thick buildup of swinging and screaming horns. After a little piano tinkle, it continues on with a light medium swing and an easy flowing trombone section. Uh, The heavy beat joins back with saxes and trombones to transition to more swinging bones with sax lines and then big screaming trumpets uh, that come in. and. set up a trombone solo from John Fedchuk. He has fun tricky agility in his slide work on double-time figures. The saxes work behind him and then into a sax section solely, some more softer trumpet lines and trombone section lines. It builds around the band with uh, big backbeat drums before some uh, phrase trading with the drums. Then it pulls back to a halftime feel before slipping into the original tempo and back again as the horns build it up. Uh, the bones get a spotlight on their own and some final soaring solo from Chuck before the final screaming note. Uh, hmm. Nice arrangement here. Yeah. And we've got uh, Remember Me. It's a tune from a Disney uh, movie Coco, written right. by Robert Lopez and Kristen Anderson Lopez. And it's a huge song in Japan, by the way. <laughs> I uh, imagine. They right. really like it here. <laughs> Such yeah. starts with Bijon Watson taking the melody tenderly on trumpet over Wilbraham's arpeggiated guitar lines. Drums kick in the band arrangement with layers of flutes and mutes at a slow tempo. Watson returns over rich trombone lines, barry sax and flutes standing out in the horn arrangement. Uh, Watson solos relaxedly as the horn arrangement gives more space before building up again. Uh, Bram gets a guitar solo next, but it's a bit overpowered, I felt, by the horn arrangement that gets into some screaming trumpet eventually. Uh, Flutes and muted trumpet stand out as the arrangement moves to the end. Now we've got an arrangement of uh, Hugh Mesakela, the uh, South African jazz trumpeter's tune, Dollars Moods. It's a real happy tune here, with tricky rhythmic horn arrangement that uh, changes up meters to waltzing ideas. Uh, saxes get a really swinging and scooping soli section there's a solo break for sean jones to come in on trumpet with some fast figures uh, getting more lyrical as he goes on with some bluesy and bouncy licks before more double time stuff uh, the horns cheer him on and then come in for a full band build-up five key emerges from that with a swinging piano solo and he has fun with lots of rhythmic creativity here as well uh, the full arrangement we heard at the beginning returns to a final climactic build-up we're unique arrangement of the old horse Silver favorite, Nika's Dream. Uh, Horns and bass come right in with a line to start this one out. It's a nice original arrangement here with syncopated low lines on barry sax and bass trombone and swirling flute and mutes above. Watson takes the melody solo on trumpet. It's slower than we usually hear this tune, but the syncopated lower line gives a lot of sense of motion uh, underneath. Uh, the arrangement thickens up with more saxes and flute. Owens kicks it up underneath on drums, uh, bringing in the horn stabs and lines. And Fife keys up first out of the s- the solo break. He's got a nice driving left-hand chords in the horse silver vein to support his right-hand lines that create anticipation with some pauses, building up into percussive figures and a little nod to sleigh ride uh, <laughs> on the way, which was kind of a curious quote, uh, in this tune. Uh, anyway, Watson follows with a trumpet solo. Uh, he emphasizes intervals and repeated figures he continues blowing on through another break, uh, quoting from the original melody, uh, if you know the arrangement of the original uh, Horace Silver piece, you'll recognize that, uh, finishing with some high register ideas. The band arrangement continues on a bit. It connects to another round of the melody. Uh, there's a little vamping section over the low syncopated line for Owens to do some drum work as the horns build back up, rising lines to an unresolved ending. And we're going to finish up with kind of a uh, trumpet showcase here, a five key original blues in a second. One note syncopated bass and bass trombone kind of uh, feel and busy drums make a setting for sean jones and uh, watson to trade trumpet lines as the band builds around them and the trumpets take the swinging melody lead the band builds to a big break uh, for a trumpet solo There's <laughs> a lot of shaking going on here uh mm-hmm. to, yeah, 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 like that i believe it's sean jones uh here uh, he continues on with darting and fluid lines there's another break into another trumpet solo uh, and then another, trading back and forth. Actually, well, all the trumpets uh, get to join in on uh, exchanges, and they all all have different uh, ideas, and you can pick out the individuality of their tones. Uh, swinging sax sectional comes out of the trumpet solos on its own, joined by the whole band building it up. Uh, drum hits break it up into the trumpets, getting another go at the melody, and that builds up with big lines uh, to the end. So, Another fine big band released from Fife we got a lot of varied material uh, as far as composition-wise, originals, uh, interesting arrangements, Horace Silver, Joe Henderson. We've got Ellings guest vocals on two numbers. Uh, there's lots of trumpet going on here with both uh, Bijon Watson and Sean Jones. Exciting solos all around, great arrangements, and lots of hard swinging.
1: Yeah, I've got to hand it to you, uh, Stephen Fife uh, was a great discovery and I would mm. never would have uh, found him without you so oh,
0: thanks yeah. for that Russ it's been good for me too yeah and I just like how he just man there's always, he's always got something new coming out uh, he's a very busy yeah. guy He and
1: he's so. also got this really distinctive piano sound and I think he'd be a great solo pianist as well I mean he's 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 um, setting himself up to be like a big band, you know, conductor and yeah. things like that, but or director, but he I'd love to hear him solo actually. Uh, he was great on the uh, piano Tree album He's got a distinctive sound. It's very big and it's really kind of jumpy sort of like he's got this real kind of rhythmic kind of spring yeah. to his playing. I really like hearing it. Yeah. So uh there's that. I'm I'm following all of his releases now too. Um this is a hard swinging album like you don't hear too often. I really yeah. like that. Uh, Kurt Elling is great on it the, by the way I didn't mention this either and I, I've got algorithm and a minute and 37 seconds into that there's an like a final chord like it sounds like it's over and hmm. a minute in like what's going on and it ends and the swinging rhythm and solo just keeps going I thought that was a really nice touch oh, yeah. it's like something like Haydn used to do in um, you know classical music yeah. but I really enjoyed that sort of effect that little surprise fantastic arranging witty surprising key changes uh it's a highly energetic album and really just an uplifting joy all the way through and it's also intellectually satisfying because of all the key changes so it's really my kind of album oh yeah i'll be i'll be buying this one this record this is one of those records that when you hear it it makes you wonder why people don't like jazz how could you not like something like this man what's going on
0: yeah i think this kind of uh release really makes you realize that uh yeah, big band is really cool and exciting. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I hope there really is a kind of big band renaissance going on. And I hope Feifke keeps both things going. I, w- I want to hear yeah. more of these, but I also hope he keeps up the trio work too and does some more interesting things with that.
1: I'd love to hear a solo piano album by him. I bet it'd be yeah. really
0: interesting. Come on, Steven, let's hear it. <laughs> Just a <laughs> Get solo. Get to work. Band. Yeah. <laughs> all right we're gonna wrap up the uh, big band uh bonanza part here with <laughs> maybe the most uh curious one but it's a lot of fun too and uh yeah. check out the name of this uh band it's got to be the biggest big band name right yeah joe mccarthy's new york afro bop alliance big band <laughs> I, I, if someone asked me who i was going to see tonight it was them i just wouldn't remember it's yeah, a long it's name a big name and uh <laughs> What we've got here is uh, the Pan-American Nutcracker Suite. Yeah, the night, that's Tchaikovsky's
1: Nutcracker. Right. This would have been good with last week when we did... Um, the, what do we do? We did uh, Mozart and uh, Latin. Yeah. Now we yeah. have... Uh,
0: Mozart and Mambo. Tchaikovsky Latin from the jazz yeah. side. Yeah. <laughs> and this is on uh, DL Media Music. Uh, So, Joe McCarthy is a 20-year veteran of the United States Naval Academy Band. He's also uh, active in music education. He's had adjunct appointments at uh, college level since 1992, where he uh, graduated from University of North Texas with a Master's in Percussion Performance. As winner of Latin Jazz Album of the Year, at the ninth Annual Latin Grammy Awards in 2008 for the recording Afro Bop Alliance uh, featuring Dave Samuels in uh, 2019. There's also the album Upwards. I think that was their second. So I think this is their third recording. We usually think of uh, this uh, Nutcracker Suite as a holiday (laughs) season recording.
1: So we're a little bit early here. We probably should have waited for this one until Christmas. It would have been a good uh, addition to that. They had like um, a
0: couple of teaser tracks from this uh, coming out earlier in the summer but the full thing came out uh, available last month uh, September 9th and so Joe McCarthy's the drummer and leader and we've got an 18 piece uh Band here. And of course, this is not the first big band arrangement of this work because the Duke Ellington and Billy Strayhorn version of this came back out way back in 1960. But this here is something new, combining it with uh, not only Latin rhythms, but some uh, Chinese drumming and a couple <laughs> other uh, interesting things here to make yeah. it unique. So this is really a fun, interesting recording we've got going on here. So let's tell you about uh, who's in the big band. As I said, McCarthy on drums, we've got our good old friend, Boris Kozlov on bass. Oh man, <laughs> yeah. he's everywhere. Yeah. The Russian Ron Carter, as we call him on the program. Yeah. Louis Perdomo on piano, who we've heard recently with uh, Miguel Zinon and Tom Harrell in recent episodes, Samuel Torres, percussion, Vinny Valentino on guitar. Saxes, uh, lead alto, Andrew Gould, also on alto, Alejandro Avies. tenor, Ben Cono. also on tenor, Luis Hernandez, Barry Sax, Frank Basile, on trumpets, lead trumpet is Nick Marchione. And we've got uh, John Chudoba, Brandon Lee, and Alex Norris, we've heard a few times on the podcast before, and we'll hear him soloing tonight. Trombones, lead trombone, Mark Patterson, Ryan uh, Keeberl, who we've heard not too long ago, John Yao, and bass trombone James Borowski. So uh, everyone knows uh, these, and so you'll be uh, entertained to hear them uh, in new ways. So we're going to start with the overture. But this starts out with an Afro-Cuban groove. In Mm. the bass piano. It really was odd hearing it this way. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Saxes and Bones work counterlines and then trumpets stack on top. Uh, It gets into a lively Cuban feel uh, with a fun arrangement of band sections. Alex Norris emerges with a trumpet solo and he has smooth lines. Chromatic figures and then some more harmonic uh, adventurous explorations building up to a high climax Uh, The band comes back with full power lines to a quick break and a reset to the melody And the final drive has some little breaks for drums and percussion uh, to kick up to the screaming horn lines Track two is the march. Uh, This one starts with the traditional bolero snare intro uh, like you always hear it Mm -hmm. uh, And the trumpets and saxes come in with a fairly straight version of the melody And then it turns to mambo. (laughs) And so that's the trick of this uh, arrangement here. It goes back and forth playfully between the the straight up traditional version and then into this mambo. Uh, A raging swing section comes up and then leads to a piano solo from Perdomo. Uh, He plays it intensely rhythmically, with uh, percussive chords uh, and McCarthy drives him along with the drums, a horn line stacked behind, and then uh, Ben Connell comes in with a suave, very suavely with a tenor solo. He gets more aggressive and edgy as he blows along. Back to the straight melody in the trumpets, and this time, and yeah. as it goes through, there's this, this upward swirling sax line right. underneath it.
1: Uh, it. It's in the original score, but it's obviously not a sax. Yeah, but, yeah. You know, it's, yeah.
0: uh So that's that, cool. I thought that was cool. That stuck out for me yeah. too on this. And then that exchanges again with the uh, mambo sections uh, into a final blast. Then the most famous uh, part of this work, the Dance of the Sugar Plum uh, Fairy, this one gets a syncopated ostinato bass and a 70s-ish wah-wah guitar <laughs> over Latin <laughs> I, percussion I, to start it. I wouldn't have thought to uh, arrange this <laughs> no, this way, really. This know, really, it's really is unique. unique. <laughs> uh, trombone stabs build up to muted trumpets uh, and wah-wah guitar together, playing the familiar melody, but cha-cha style. Yeah. <laughs> then saxes take the counter, you know, do do line. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's a nice arrangement there. Uh, there's fun percussion breakdown into cool arrangement with Bones, uh, getting a broken up version of the melody with swirling saxes and soaring trumpets. Uh, that breaks up for a berry sax solo from Frank uh, Basile over the opening bass and rhythm idea. Next is uh, Ryan Kibro on trombone. Uh, we heard from him back in episode 56. Uh, here he plays his rising uh, figures, powerful blasts. Uh, finally, we get some frantic alto from Alejandro Áviles. Uh, Perdomo gets some intense solo time too over washy guitar chords and Latin percussion drums, as well as the horns layer uh, back into a cha-cha reset uh, to the end with some final percussion and guitar wah. (laughs) Mm. Then we've got the fourth movement, uh, Trepak. Here, McCarthy opens it on drums and then kicks it into a fast mambo. Uh, It switches up to 6-8 on the way, uh, and the horn arrangement builds up to a huge fall. Uh, Next are a trumpet solo, tenor sax solo, then a harmon muted trumpet solo and an alto sax solo over the groove uh, with drums and Latin percussion. It doesn't say in the notes uh, who the solo players are. The horns start to stack in behind the alto. Uh, We get a cool little percussion breakdown that slows and then speeds up the tempo back again to the final full arrangement of the melody with swinging saxes and huge horn stabs to the end. Then we've got the Arabian dance This gets a conga intro with drums and bass added, soft brass and woodwinds enter giving a kind of Gil Evans Sketches of Spain environment feel to it, Uh, Perdomo adds ringing piano figures between the lines, it's lush with flutes and harmon mutes, and Andrew Gould emerges with a soprano sax solo that has some fun modal and rhythmic play, and it charms the serpents right up to the end of the tune. (laughs) Next is Chinese dance, track six, and um, McCarthy starts this with some actual Chinese drum and uh, percussion patterns, so it's a completely different tone to the drums and feel. It's very busy, but there's some conga added in there. It's rapid and tight. Uh, Ringing piano and bass usher in the bones and trumpets with some trilly saxes as well. Syncopated brass stabs give it a playful mood and it builds into some big blasts and then a really singing trombone solo exchange from multiple players. Uh, The horn arrangement around them keeps the playful dance feel. It builds up and then ends on a mellow sax chord. You know, the main theme in this arranged this
1: way it almost makes it sound like Handel's Joy to the World when the (laughs) the main period comes in it kind of was waiting for the rest of that after the Joy to the World part you know it just went off on its own way
0: yeah Yeah, that's a fun one track seven is Dance of the Reed Flutes Uh, this one gets a pushing samba tempo uh, with some piano from Perdomo to start as brass lines float in and then trade off to saxes Uh, the trumpets have great blasts on top as the saxes and trombones exchange Uh, there's some wah guitar under with more cool trombone lines that build to more full band section exchanges Uh, this is really fun arranging Uh, Hmm. valentino gets a guitar solo with a rather unusual echoey tone The rhythm section drops out for a bit as the bones come in with a powerful section, and then saxes and trumpets stack on as the trumpets kick in again. comes back to a more playful and bright samba feel uh, to the end with a screaming final hold. Track 8, The Waltz of the Flowers. Lush horn lines alternate with undulating piano figures from Perdomo for an intro, and then drums introduce a beat that Perdomo gives this kind of rhythmic feel, it says in the notes, it's a Venezuelan joropo feel mm. to the waltz of the flower's melody. Uh, once it gets going, it's elegant with singing trumpet lines on top. Uh, mm. Valentino gets, in contrast to all that <laughs> really wacky wah stuff he was doing, <laughs> an acoustic guitar solo. It really sparkles and comes out with clear articulation. There's some nice cup-muted trumpet lines answering the main melody as the arrangement continues on in layered lines. Till a change up in mood for a jazzy tenor sax solo. The horns build again, return to the waltz theme, a lot of variations of tone as it gets passed around with flutes and saxes to the brass, and then McCarthy kicks in the final brass blast. For a big ending. Yeah, overall, it's just a lot of fun on this album. All the familiar melodies, you know, from uh, Christmas concerts right. in Tchaikovsky <laughs> get set against Cuban, Brazilian, and other uh, rhythms with inventive arrangements. It's exciting, sometimes humorous, but also skillful yeah. in the use of tones uh, in the instruments and textures in the arrangements. Uh, intense solos. Uh, McCarthy drives things hard on the drums underneath. Yeah, so have a lot of fun with this and then keep it around on your rotation into the holiday season. It's sure to have uh, a good part in the big band Christmas uh, sort of cycle.
1: Yeah, I think the main thing to say about this is, you know, like you said, fun arrangements. It's really fun. And, you know, Christmas is fun too and this is like a Christmas piece so it's just really perfect, I think, in that way. It's It's a little different. I mean, we've heard The Nutcracker a million times. It's always good to hear something different. This is really rhythmically incisive. You hear all those you know those those melodies just kind of stretched out into like different to fit like different kinds of rhythms which i really yeah. liked yeah it's um, a lot of fun yeah if you're over familiar with the nutcracker but looking for a twist this is the way to go um highly appealing and entertaining all the way through i would like this closer to christmas though i have to say yeah yeah <laughs> yeah
0: it's just yeah. i mean if if you just someone said uh how about a latin version of the <laughs> nutcracker say what it, right. it's things that you would think don't go together but in the end yeah they actually uh go together quite nicely what's next
1: the latin version of stockhausen what about- <laughs> Can you imagine yeah, no <laughs> there it is the challenge is thrown out there who's gonna take it up <laughs> i'd listen to
0: it <laughs>
1: yeah oh yeah you yeah. never know
0: so you've got some uh new interesting uh interpretations of beethoven sure to uh make you get reinterested in those uh, pieces you've heard uh many times before but i thought these are kind of fresh and uh, big boned we've got you know some other challenging maybe contemporary music but nothing too I guess challenging. i didn't think yeah, yeah i think it was too challenging it was not off-putting or anything like yeah. that and then we've got uh, some different big band here we've got uh, hard swinging everything's pretty much hard swinging but we've got some latin all original things uh in there lots of big sounds Going to really light up the speakers this week if you listen to all these recordings.
1: I liked all of it. My my two favorite recordings were the Second Symphony Beethoven Symphony Two, um, mm. with the Brett Dean piece by yeah. Juroski, yeah. and the other one was the uh, Stephen Feifke Generation Gap Jazz Orchestra. Those were the two big listens of the week for me. I really oh, enjoyed great. both of those.
0: Cool. Yeah. yeah, I guess um, I liked all of these. Um, I did. I did too. I liked them all. It's a it's a really satisfying week of. Uh, listening here
1: yeah, I think we might have another satisfying week uh, next week next well, we'll week we're to going to do
0: uh, some piano go back to piano, piano just because we have so much and um,
1: yeah there's always a lot of piano in uh, classical and jazz both
0: <laughs> that's for sure so that will be uh, something to look forward to then uh, if you want to find out what those are come over to our Facebook page after you check out this episode or go on to Deezer because the playlist for next week will be up shortly after this episode and so if you come a little bit closer, you can get that uh, secret information ahead of time. Or come over to Facebook anyway and uh, check out what goes on over there. Leave a comment. See whatever posts I find for new releases that might not make it into an episode but are worth checking out every day mm. there. And uh, also thanks as always to Fast Signs of Staten Island for our glowing neon logo. Anything else you want to say before we uh, bid everyone adieu, Mike?
1: Not really. So we got piano next week, and I'll throw a I'm going to throw a harpsichord in there too, just for a little oh. variety. But uh, well, looking forward to it. And it was a, it was a fun week. I hope you guys are going to listen to these recordings and not just to us. Yeah, <laughs> we really want you to hear the recordings. Yeah, you know. definitely check these
0: out, especially right. that uh, Beethoven second. That uh, yeah, that was a good maybe one. Maybe my new favorite version of that. So
1: yeah, it was pretty thrilling. I liked it too.
0: All right, and there you go. There you go. Another satisfying episode episode 83 of adult music the podcast with music for the mature mind we'll be back again next week with episode 84 so check out that playlist and we'll see you again next time